Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, May the 3rd, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, No Shot Josh. The steady, dependable, here every day sort of employee. Josh, I'm telling you, I'm deeply concerned, not bothered, but concerned about, about where we are. You've been unbelievably competent, able, ready to do your job to the point that I've not seen this guy beside me. <laughs> since last friday mm. i mean is that i mean i understand seniority i understand rank i get that i know where i am in the um in the uh in, in the pantheon of radio authority mm-hmm. but josh i think you've overdone it i think you've expressed the ability so profoundly wow okay i'm shakespearean here this morning <laughs> that the um the senior hand of our trifecta has decided to um just dash off to wherever he chooses <laughs> Um, to dash off to and come to work whenever he chooses to come to work. Um, how you doing, Daddy? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, my, my, my brother and I used to debate about my dad. My dad would come into the business. Listen this would have been late. I mean, this is after Dad had built a business, worked his behind off, sustaining a business, and then it got to a point where um, he would not come to work on a Friday and he would not come to work on a Monday. And my brother and I would he'd get there on Tuesday and said, so where have you been, hot shot or high flyer? You know what I mean? And it would bother him to no end. He, he knew that he'd earned the right to be gone on Friday and Monday. Because like I said, he started from scratch and, and built a business. And, um, and you know, and he would always say, hey, I'm thinking about going to the mountains. And, um, you know, I may leave Thursday night and I'll see you Monday. And then he would call Monday morning and say, hey, I got some things up here to take care of. I'll see you all tomorrow morning. So when he would always show up Tuesday morning, I mean, we would just rub it in because it irked him to no end <laughs> until his last breath. I mean, he took great pride in his work ethic and um, <laughs> and just, you know, not being there on Friday and Monday and us taking a good jab at him. It just irked him um, to no Funny. end. Good Funny. morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Uh, good morning. So well, how, how long did it take you to think about how you were going to, quote, welcome what I mean, quote, okay. back what, what would in you such, imagine in okay. such welcoming terms you've been sitting beside me yep. for 11 years yep. when do you think that dawned on me you thought of that uh as the microphone went on before the show this pretty morning. much yeah pretty much i had no <laughs> idea where we were headed or yep. how we would um welcome you back <laughs> and i and i've told our listeners um you know where you were and what you were doing i said i'll leave the details mm-hmm. and, and specifics to Rhea because it's a family matter some people are unbelievably public about their private lives. I guess I would be one of those in the weirdest way imaginable. Um, I mean, we've talked about all the struggles and turmoil and travails of of, um, of addiction, and my family's dealing with that. And Rev's going, like, man, I don't know how you do it. I don't know if I'd tell that or not. You know what I mean? I, 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 people in the church might know, but I'm not sure anybody else anybody else would. That's true. But, but I've always you respected. Put it all out there. But I mean, I've always respected other people's privacy mm-hmm. about what they're willing to speak about or not. People know that your mom's old. People know that in the last couple of years, you've had to make unexpected trips down there on behalf of caring um, for your mom. Um, you and I talked yesterday on your way home. Yep. Um, your mom is very much at peace, but I'll let you explain the situation as detailed as you choose. And first I'll say, uh, Josh, thank you. Uh, last week was his first week and we kind of 
you know, accelerated his training, getting hands on to be sure he'd be ready to run the controls if I wasn't here to help. And he exceeded expectations. So uh, congratulations. And thank you, Josh, for that. It made it possible really for me to to make a trip to Florida. So a couple of years ago, we talked about it on the air when it happened. So so listeners that have been with us that long will remember that uh, she had some health challenges and some surgeries that were successful and, uh, and have given her a couple of more years of of hanging out, I guess. But um, recently, uh, she had some more challenges, uh, went into the hospital and ended up with a pretty serious terminal diagnosis, unfortunately. She's, eight, she's 87 years old. And so what I was doing over the weekend and over the last couple of days is went down and she was in the hospital, but has decided not to get curative care. Because she's 87. Yeah. And so right. that's right. And she is. And so, you know, we went home and kind of met with the, the hospice people to start that process. Now, now she's at home and still able to take care of herself. She feels fine, no pain, anything like that. So that we're thankful for that. Um, where it goes from here, obviously, we don't know. The, the future, we can't tell the future. But at this point, uh, she's doing okay and feeling fine, and she is very much at peace, and this is exactly what she wants. So, so me and my brother, I mean, we're just here to support and do anything that we can. Cool beans. And I told Rev yesterday, as, as I would, I said, we live in too damn long, Rev. <laughs> You did say. I mean, people are just living too long. Human beings weren't made to be away from the factory for 90 years on average. We just weren't. We need to, um, I mean, in all honesty, I mean, I've got friends. Well, you say I, you say that now, but if you, if you're, you turn 90 and you're in relatively good health. I get it. I get it. But I'm talking about on the average, on the average. I mean, when you get in your late 80s, uh, most people begin to have serious complications and it's far more of a grind than they're up for. I mean, you're right. I read something a month or two ago about a 90-year-old running a marathon. It took him 16 days, but he ran a marathon. Uh, I'm exaggerating there. I've read 74-year-old men climb Mount Everest. I mean, they're, they're, they're outliers in every example or every case in life. But, you know, it's kind of an interesting question. So we've got medical advancement and technology, and we've cured disease and eradicated, uh, you know, a lot of um, a lot of plagues upon humanity. What is, how long should a person live? What is the expiration date of a human being? I and mean, I read a lot. Josh and I were actually talking about um, his sleep habits, you know, having to get used to getting up earlier than he formerly did. And I said, Josh, you know, I'm not lecturing to anybody. Uh, exercise will help you sleep better and wake up better. I'm reading a lot about, I mean, Breeze has actually helped me in some of this. I'm reading a lot about longevity quality of life and longevity. I don't care. I mean, I, I don't have any eligibility left. I ain't playing linebacker for anybody ever again. I mean, I'm just not. Um, in high school, played a little tight end, a little linebacker. That's done. <laughs> I mean, once a Red Raider, always a Red Raider, but I'm a Red Raider from the, the late 70s and early 80s. So, so when I work out, I'm not thinking about you know, wow, I got to bench this 400, you know, so I can uh, get that, I can hand shuck that, that offensive lineman when he comes to my way. I mean, I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking about longevity and what quality of life can I have uh, in, in longevity. I read something, and I've told Rev this before, because you talk about why do you go to the gym? Why, why do you try to, you know, devote that much energy to staying healthy? Uh, I don't think you could devote energy to anything more important. But I had it explained to me one day, talking about playing linebacker for Carolina or Clemson. I'm, I'm far past that. I was never good enough to do that to begin with. So, so why worry about it at nearly 60? But, but I had it explained to me that exercise and fitness and longevity, imagine a 70-year-old 
grandfather with a cup of coffee and an infant child in his arm. I mean, imagine in a hospital, you, you're 70 years old, 72-ish, you've got a, a, you know, your grandbaby, your newborn grandbaby in one arm, cup of coffee in the other arm, and you sit out of a chair by yourself. And you don't say, hey, hold the grandbaby while I get up. Hold the cup of coffee while I get up. You know, don't want to drop the baby and scald myself or someone else. That's kind of the pursuit. And so, so when I say about your mom being 87, and you told me for most of her life, she had really, really good health. Mm-hmm. Very few people have good health past 85. They just don't. And I don't know why, but I'm not an expert. I'm not an exercise scientist. I don't understand uh, human anatomy and medicine and biology. I mean, I, I don't. But, but I read a lot about it, and you can't beat Father Time. I mean, it's absolutely undefeated. Uh, my, both my parents died at 63, so I didn't struggle, you know, with, with parents getting old and watching them begin to break down more frequently and more frequently. But, but I am at an age now that many friends of mine and their parents are having to deal with what Rev is dealing with. I mean, I got a lot of 60-year-old friends in my life whose parents are in, in their mid to upper 80s, and it seems like every time we talk, they're heading to their home to, to see their mother or father because they've got something wrong with them. It's like every conversation I have with a buddy of mine who went to school with me about the Gamecocks or Tigers or, you know, whatever. Uh, hey, well, what's going on? Well, I just left mama's house. You know, because mama's got something going on or daddy's got something going on or, you know, daddy died two years ago and now mama's by herself and mama. And I just think I, I told my wife, we went to as much as we love going to the beach. We spent about four, three consecutive Saturdays going to funerals and we left the third funeral. I said, yeah, I'm tired of going to funerals on Saturdays. I mean, it's, you know, but, but it's what you do because these are friends of mine, lifelong friends of mine and their parents. And, um, and I just told her, I said, you know, we just, we, we're the age we're going to be around a lot of dying. I mean, it, it isn't fun, but we're going to be around a lot, a lot of dying. And, you know, I've, I've often thought of this. If, if the good Lord, I've, I've always said, if the good Lord left me a post-it note and said, how many years you need? Good years or, or, or struggling years? You know what I mean? What is the over-under? I mean, what, what is your number? I, I don't, you know, mine, I don't know. Um, I don't want to live to be 87 if the last 10 years of my life suck. You know, and I'm a burden on everybody and, you know, they're worried about me and they got to take care of me. I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to be that. Um, but give me 80 good years. I'm out of here. <laughs> you know, I, I'm pretty good with that. Um, and, and so there's a quality of life and, and, and once again, I, I think longevity of life is something that, um, that, that we should devote some degree of our abilities toward, um, your, your mom obviously has lived a very fruitful life if she's 87 and you told me, and I mean, I don't want to share too much of this, but you said that she's very much at peace. Yeah. You know, and, um, and that's, you know, what she wants. Well, I mean, to me, she's basically saying, here I go. You ready? She's basically saying, I know I'm at the end and I'm cool with that. I mean, I, I, you know, don't, don't, don't sugarcoat this. I'm 87. I can count. I mean, I do the math. You know, the average life expectancy in America is 79.8. I'm 87. You know, I'm seven to the good as far as far as that goes. But we always want more. We we always want a little bit more. And Rev said it. You know, it's easy to say that if it isn't your mom or your dad or your grandmother right. or your grandfather. Um, but it's just it, it is what it is. Life is not eternal on this side of salvation. And um, and I you know I, I hope she has a good however long she has left. But um, and all you can do is do what you did. Uh, this past weekend to go take care of and do do the best you know how. Yep. Um, but but it's it's um, I've, I've all what, what is what is your number? 
See, if you'd asked that question 100 years ago, it'd be different, right? It'd because be 70 med- years old. It'd be 70. Medical advances yeah. and such. It does, and medical advances, you have to uh, say, did increase the quality of life, does increase the quality of life into the upper years. So the question now is, you asked the question, what is the number? What, but, but here's the question. Okay, here. <laughs> as long as you can get the higher, the highest number you can get with a good quality of well, life. I, I, I get that in genetics and exercise and nutrition. All those contribute you know, to, to the, to the human well-being, but at some point in time, there, there's no medical advancement. There's no diet. There's no technology. There's no, I'm um, going to the gym. At some point in time, you run out of gas. I mean, the human body expires. I mean, everybody has an expiration date. I mean, it's sad. We, we saw the thing in Folly Beach about the, the drunk driver running into the back. I mean, we saw oh, that. And I, I mean, it's it. terrible. That's, oh. that's just, I mean, that breaks your heart because a couple was ready to live just married yeah just married and she's killed and he's you know severely injured and there's a 25 year old who made a horrible 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 decision but but as as you know other than that other than those unexpected things and those happen every day and they'll happen again i told rev yesterday i mean it sucks for your 87 year old mom to get a bad diagnosis it really sucks when a 17 year old gets a bad diagnosis or a 27 year old I mean, there, there's an eight-year-old today in America that will get diagnosed with terminal cancer. Somewhere in America today, an eight-year-old will get diagnosed with terminal cancer. It doesn't make it any easier for Rev to have to deal with his mom and her declining health and, I mean, obviously in the winter of her life, but it kind of does. Mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of does because you say, hey, you know, my mom got a pretty fair shake. That eight-year-old diagnosed with terminal cancer, help me with that one, God. I mean, help me, help me get my arms and, and, uh, and, and, you know, grapple with that, uh, the best way I know how Josh, you did well, uh, revs back. <laughs> Glad to have him back. Is, do we have a call? We do have okay, a call. Well, you, you need to get doing your job now. I mean, you, you, <laughs> just because I'm <laughs> getting here. So, so let's go to the phone. Someone's there. We have Bobby in Hartsville. Bobby, you're live. Hey, good morning. Uh, I got a question for you, Ken, but, uh, I wanted to make a comment on what you was talking about. You were talking about exercises uh, and, and longevity. My mom, she's 82, and she walked. That's the only exercise that she really did in her life. Is she walked and walked and walked. She did that probably into her 70s. But she's 82, and she's in really good health. She takes very little medication. She's doing really well. But I got one question for you, Ken. How does it feel to uh, finish in second place in the election yesterday. Second place in the election? You, you got to enlighten me. What, what's going on? Uh, you finished second place for Johnsonville City Council. <laughs> I did see that. I forgot about it. Somebody what? sent me a text. <laughs> Somebody with my name ran for city council seat, a city council seat in uh, in, in Johnsonville. <laughs> with your name? It couldn't have been me because I don't come in second place, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> I figured that'd be your answer. <laughs> yeah, thank you, my man. Good to good to hear from you. Yeah, uh, that, that, somebody sent me a text. I can't think of who it was. It said, "Hey, when did you decide to run for city council in Johnsonville?" I said, "No, no, 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 no. I'm not from Johnsonville, and I ain't running for Jack, you know, <laughs> ever again." Uh, but somebody of my name or with my name uh, ran for city council in Johnsonville, and I didn't know the election was yesterday. Don't keep up with that uh, as much as I once did. But um, congratulations to whomever beat um, Ken Ard running for city council seat 
in Johnsonville. Eight four three six six one. You said that somebody with your name. So well, it's I mean, like I you own that name. name. You no, own that stop name. With that now. <laughs> I mean, as, as gracious as I've been to you about being gone for a couple of days, the second we hire a, a full time hand here, uh, okay, I see how how you want to be. Turn around is fair. Hey, my play, job right, is Roy to York. pick up on things like that yeah, and comment right. on you're them. Right. right? Yeah, you're right. You're right. right. You're, t- turn around is fair play. Fair <laughs> enough. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Every now and then, the New York Times decides to be journalistic in nature, and yesterday was the moment in time they decided to do that. Why? Because they've got an easy suspect. There's a likely target. Um, they have investigated. What happened, um, what and happened at mm-hmm. Fox News? And the New York Times had an article yesterday uh, basically saying that the, the Tucker Carlson firing or dismissal or agreement to separate, whatever you want to call it, um, Tucker ain't doing the show anymore at 8 o'clock. The highly rated um, epicenter of the new right, I didn't say the alt-right, the new right, um, America first, the loudest voice, most effective voice, um, and, I, and I'm telling you guys, watching the Sunday morning shows reminded me of what we discussed last week. Nobody says anything interesting anymore. I mean, Vivek Ramaswamy did, but I'm talking about in the media, people who are responsible for giving their opinions don't say anything interesting anymore. Limbaugh did. I mean, that's why he was such a monumental media figure. Tucker did. That's why Fox News in my humble opinion, is a shadow of its former self. They lost the only provocative voice on the network. I mean, Brett Baer's a good guy. Uh, I don't know Hannity. I don't know Ingram. I mean, I, I'm, I'm suspecting Brett Baer is a good guy. Baer actually hosted a debate that um, at the Myrtle Beach Convention Center in the 2016, I've uh, been 2012, the 2012 presidential election that featured Newt Gingrich. Rudy Giuliani, if I'm not, no, that would have been an 08, 212. That would have been Newt and Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney. There you go. Mitt Romney. Um, and, you know, Bear came to, a. I mean, I, I was in politics then and Bear came to an event we had. I remember had a real nice suit on and a pair of sneakers, you know, back when everybody didn't do that. Now they do it in front of the camera. Back then they did it uh, behind the camera. Had a, you know, like a really nice suit. Like, okay, I'm ready for, for business and, um, and wore sneakers. And I'm like, how oh, you do that, man? Uh, my mom would come out of the grave and get me. If I'd done something uh, like that. But anyway, the New York Times uh, did a, I don't want to say a hit piece because it's, it's accurate and, um, and began asking that they're trying to FOI some of the redacted information in the Dominion lawsuit and it, uh, somewhat of a revelation. It's kind of interesting to me that a text message sent by Tucker Carlson set off somewhat of a panic at the highest level of Fox executiveship. Um, some of the Fox executives, and this would have been two days before the beginning of the lawsuit. Um, the Fox executives and really the Fox board found an email as part of discovery that set off some alarm bells. Um, and I mean, I'll read it verbatim in the New York times cause they'll, you know, obviously have a bias about it. A text message sent by Tucker Carlson that set off a panic at the highest levels of Fox on the eve of of its multi-billion dollar defamation trial showed its most popular host sharing his private inflammatory views about violence and race. Now that's their, that's the first paragraph in their report. Um, they, they actually talked specifically about a single text 
that Tucker shared with a producer on the show. And he said um, there, there was a situation, uh, January 6th, the Capitol riots, there was a confrontation between two or three Trump supporters and an Antifa kid is the way. Now, obviously, the Trump supporters were big, burly men, uh, per the New York Times. The kid was from Antifa. The kid, you know, the kid, right, right. the innocent kid that didn't know any better. So um, the Trump supporters were violently attacking an Antifa kid. I mean, that's once again, that gives the um, the impression that there are these big, brawny Trump guys, you know, bald eagle tattoos and all. And they jumped this Antifa kid um, and Tucker text. I mean, some of the visuals were on the air and Tucker text his producer or one of his producers jumping a guy like that is a dishonorable, excuse me, jumping a guy like that is dishonorable. Obviously that's the text, but I mean, that's through, you know, what we had some redacted information and discovery. Uh, now some of the information is being made available. There's some FOIs. I think the New York times submitted a freedom of information some of this um i don't think everything's been made public but some of the some of the previous texts that were left redacted have been made public um so tucker says in a text you ready jumping a guy like that is dishonorable obviously you ready you ready for this it's not how white men fight Mm. Mm. it's not how white men fight his words not mine i mean that that's what tucker text to his producer, um, that single text from what the New York Times is reporting, and guys, I'm telling you, they're liberal as all get out, but they have the ability to do journalistic work as good as anybody in America. I mean, they, they've got exemplary talent, that they've got an infrastructure, that they've got, I don't say a reputation, it's different today than it was in days gone by. Well, they were able to dig this up from well, I mean, somewhere. They, they break stories. I mean, they have the ability, if they choose to, to break news stories. This is not kind to Tucker. I mean, you know, so you would expect them to break that story. Uh, they had not broke many stories on Hunter Biden and the laptop. There's a reason they've not broke many stories on Hunter Biden and the laptop. And that's the travesty in all of this, that they have the ability to break a story about, you know, redacted text that are now made public because the New York Times has lawyers that can legally ask for via the Freedom of Information um, you know, discovery material in a lawsuit or a trial, they could do the same thing with Hunter Biden and the laptop if they chose to, but they're on the same team. Therefore, they will not um, choose to. The text alarmed the Fox board, which saw the message a day before Fox was set to defend itself against Dominion voting systems before a jury. The board grew concerned that the message could become public at trial when Mr. Carlson was on the stand creating a sensational and damaging moment that would raise broader questions about the company. The day after the discovery, the board told Fox executives it was bringing in an outside law firm to conduct an investigation into Mr. Carlson's conduct. The text message added to a growing number of internal issues involving Mr. Carlson that led the company's leadership to conclude he was more of a problem than an asset and had to go. That is according to several people with knowledge of uh, the decision. They went on to talk about, you know, Tucker's own emotions as he watched videos of January 6th, some of the other texts, but that's the one. That's not how white men fight. But I mean, that's the one that caused Fox a lot of concern. Now, now let's go conspiracy theory because you can't be on this show without pronouncing or trying to tie in some sort of conspiracy theory here. So, 
it really did not come the the not the order to dismiss but the um the internal issue was not driven by the fox executives it was driven by the fox board the fox executives had the information i mean they knew the text was there the fox board found out about the text and the fox board basically enlisted the services of a um of a uh, an outside law firm to conduct a thorough investigation into Mr. Carlson's conduct. So my mind goes to Paul Ryan. That's what I thought when you said that. I mean, if, if Tucker Carlson is the most effective voice for America First in, in America today, and I think he is clearly, I think Tucker Carlson at the eight o'clock time slot at Fox News was where you went to get, to some degree, the intellectual underpinning of America First. Uh, Tucker's an intellect. He's a smart guy. He's a very articulate man. Um, obviously, had good producers, good writers, good staff. I mean, it was a. I mean, it was a. It was a. It was an eight hundred pound gorilla in the world of media. I mean, you know, three and a half, four and a half, five million viewers, somewhere between three and five million viewers. And I'll tell you how strong Tucker's show was. If you check the Fox numbers outside of Tucker's time slot, they're all dying. I mean, they're all dying. So Tucker drove the audience. O'Reilly drove the audience for many, many, many years. I don't think O'Reilly drove the audience. The audience was bigger because cable news was bigger in the days of O'Reilly. I mean, you didn't have Twitter. You didn't have Facebook. You didn't have, you know, the, the alternate media outlets that we have today. So O'Reilly normally had about 6 million viewers. But once again, that would have probably been in cable news heyday. I mean, it never got any better than it was for cable news when Bill O'Reilly was in the 8 o'clock because I've heard O'Reilly say, well, I had 2 million more viewers than Tucker. Yeah, but I mean, you were operating in a very different world than Tucker was. Um, but but Carlson's show being um, not on the air, I mean, Kilmeade's numbers are atrocious. Hannity's numbers are atrocious. I mean, they're south of 2 million. I mean, since the wow. night after Tucker left, I mean, when other, in other words, Tucker does the show Friday, doesn't do the show Monday, I guess there's a curiosity factor, and everybody tunes in to see what's up with Fox. You know, what are they going to do? Who's going to replace Tucker? Who will be there? Uh, we saw Brian Kilmeade and his feet dangling trying to touch the floor, but we saw <laughs> Brian Kilmeade. <laughs> I'm being uh, a bit suggestive. Anyway, um, and they had good ratings that night. I mean, across the board from, from, from the five. Now, the five hadn't lost a lot. I mean, they're still at three, one, three-ish. But, they, you know, they were a higher-rated show than Tucker, but they were not effectively articulating America first. Tucker's, I mean, if you really think about when Tucker says that's not how white men fight, let's be candid. Let's be honest with one another. I don't have any idea how chauvinistic Tucker is, how misogynist. I don't know. I mean, the time says he is. That leads me to believe he's not. But, but I'll tell you this, Tucker's show, consistently was about the displacement of white men. I mean, there was an undercurrent there, the displacement of white men. Um, you know, what, what have white men done to deserve all this? I mean, you know, the, the mainstream media targets white men. I mean, I've joked around with my fellow white men. Uh, we had a good run, but it's over. You know, the, the bullseye's on our back. Now, I'll say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but and then somewhat sarcastically, but, but to some degree, I believe that. I mean, you know, the white male has probably had an oversized influence in, in the global economy. 
our, our eco, uh, excuse me, our socioeconomic systems um, have been largely run by white males. And Tucker's a white male. So when, when Tucker, and, and America first, I mean, what is the percentage of white males that voted for Donald Trump? Nearly all of them. I mean, other than the affluent, educated Northeasterner, I mean, every, every white man in America voted for Trump. I mean, once again, I'm saying every figuratively, not literally. Every white man didn't vote for Trump, but damn near all of them did. <laughs> you know what I mean? Except those who live in the Northeast are fluent or are very educated. Normally Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, Brown, Vanderbilt. I mean, you know the likely suspects. Some of the prestigious information or institutions that have convinced you you're too smart to vote for for Donald Trump. So, so the, the, the grievance of the displacement of the white male is pretty pervasive in the Trump movement in the America. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it's undeniably real. I mean, it's there. There is no question about that. I mean, the, 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 the white male feels somewhat displaced in today's, you know, um, socioeconomic standings. Um, you, 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 you know, if you're a white male and you're trying to get in med school, you better have really good grades or, or know someone. If you're a white male trying to get in, trying to get a job and you're competing with an African-American female or a, uh, you know, a, uh, 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 an Indian American, I mean, you, you know where I'm headed. I'm in affirmative action, racial quotas, um, you know, leveling the playing field. The half the country believes that that is something, um, that, that we kind of owe ourselves. It's deserving that we stop the great run. The white male had, uh, especially the white European, you know, male, uh, the white Anglo-Saxon, uh, male that there's a reality there. And I'm not trying to be sex. I mean, excuse me, racist by any stretch of the imagination, but when Tucker said, that it's not how white men fight. And his show historically had been, I mean, once again, the undercurrent. The, the theme of the show is America first. And, and he did a very effective job at articulating in, in somewhat of an intelligent way why people are enthusiastically supportive of, of America first. But the undercurrent was the displacement or the perceived displacement of the white male the transitioning from the white male being the dominant actor or character in our global economy to being treated just like everybody else. And, um, and I'm not defending, nor am I piling on uh, that mindset. But when, but when my mind goes to who made what decision at Fox, um, and I read in the New York Times that the decision was made largely by the board and not the executives, the board the New York Times says, was deeply alarmed by this text. This is not how white men fought. The board grew so concerned that the message could become public during a very sensationalized trial that included Tucker Carlson taking the stand that they instructed um, law firm, the law firm, representing them in the Dominion case, cut a deal. Cut a deal and let's get out of here. Now, here I go. You ready? Um, that's reported. I mean, that's the New York Times. That's been corroborated. I mean, that's substantiated. Once again, they could do that with Hunter Biden and the laptop. They won't because they're on the same team. But, but imagine Paul Ryan having an opportunity to get Tucker off the field for a year and a half. I mean, Ryan's not a dummy. I mean, he's an establishment uh, elitist, but he's not a dummy. I mean, just because you're established doesn't mean you're stupid. Just because you're an elitist doesn't mean you're dumb. Paul Ryan is a very capable man. And if Paul Ryan can take the most effective articulator of Trumpism off the air, 
during the throes of a campaign, why not take advantage of that opportunity? Now, now Tucker left a little blood in the water, right? I mean, Tucker, you know, I mean, he said some things, did some things. Um, I'm not saying it should have cost him his job, but, but imagine being on the Fox board, not caring much for America first, rather have a nominee other than Donald Trump and having the opportunity to lean on some of your fellow Fox board members. And, um, and, and once again, you can't stop Trump from running for president, but you can stop the most articulate and effective voice in America first from delivering a message night after night after night after night. And I think that's what happened. Hmm. I mean, wow. I think this was driven and more Paul by the Ryan, board. Paul Ryan is our former Republican Speaker of the House. And a former vice presidential candidate. True. Man. And you're not going to convince me. I mean, I don't have any info. I mean, I, you know, I don't have any corroborative. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an opinion monster. The New York Times did some reporting, some pretty good reporting, I might add. Um, I wish they would report this on Hunter Biden, the laptop, <laughs> but they did some pretty good reporting. My point is, when I began reading this story, and it was obvious to me the decision was directed by the board, I go to Paul Ryan because Ryan hates Trump. Ryan probably hates Tucker. I mean, he like, you know, you can't, when you sit on the Fox board and, and you say, Tucker needs to be off the air, somebody says, hey, man, I mean, he's the biggest, he draws the biggest audience we've got. But, but if Tucker leaves a little blood in the water, you've got a little street cred with asking something be done. And, and once again, guys, if Tucker's not on the air for the next 18 months, Trump's odds of winning the presidency obviously diminish. I'm not saying he can't win without Tucker, but his chances are much better if Tucker's on the air rallying the troops on behalf, not of Trump, but of America first, reminding Americans every night, three to five million Americans every night, why this fight is a worthy cause. So where do we go now? There is nowhere to go. There is no voice out there advocating for America first in the way, and I'm talking about television, radio's different now, but there, you know, every radio voice that I hear in conservative world is an America firster. I mean, they, they, whether they're a convert, whether they're doing it to please an audience, what, whether they've had a, a road to demise, I don't have any idea what is motivated, but I don't know of a single influential radio personality that is not fully supportive of this America first agenda, uh, putting Americans first, putting American workers, families, uh, the American way of life first, but nobody did it as good as Tucker and Tucker's off the field and they're paying him 20 million bucks. Rev and I were talking about, you know, he can't do a television show. He can't do a podcast. Well, he could do a television show. He could do a podcast if he weren't being paid by Fox. So, so in essence, the Fox board decided, hey, let's pay Tucker $20 million. I mean, it'll cost him $32, $33 million to keep him off the field. But if the conservative, if the most conservative network in America is committed to keeping the most America-first voice off of the airwaves during a presidential campaign, is Fox News really that conservative? And what is Paul Ryan doing on their board anyway? 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. Welcome back. 843-661-0937. Someone's on the phone. Held on during the break. Let's go there. We have Breeze. You're on Breeze. Yeah, Kitty, that's hilarious. Uh, first of all, white men don't fight. So the whole thing Tarker said was a joke. He had to be joking. I mean, Robin, I don't, I, I haven't, I mean, we're the softest, we're the softest race of people there is. I mean, I mean, there's, there, 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 I would love to see white guys fighting. I mean, they are fighting. But that being said, if what, like, like Rujah said, now if a black guy 
black man jumping uh, jumping someone and beating them up, and the black guy said, you know, that's not how black men are supposed to fight. Well, he'd be applauded for that. But all I saw for the past three years was a bunch of daggone pansy-ass, helpless white guys that wouldn't stand together getting their ass whipped all over the United States of America by Antifa and BLM guys. Did you see anything different? I didn't see a group of white guys standing up and saying, we're not going to get our butts whipped anymore and fighting back. They just took a butt with it for now. Uh, they, you know, they didn't stand together. They didn't do nothing. I mean, the white guys are the biggest sissy on earth. And, I mean, I, what, what the hell are they talking about? I mean, right now, if you were if you go to the beach Friday and you're sitting over there at your, at your rusted anchor with all those guys in there, and let's say three tough guys walk in there, and they start harassing the women in there and pushing people around. Out of that group, and it'll be all white in there. I know that because I've been in there. There might be one black guy in there, and he might become help you. I don't know. But let's say something happened in there. How many of those white guys in there, kid, you think would actually step up and help you fight those three tough guys? Well, they can't mess their Patagonia sweater vest up, Breeze. I mean, really, a serious question. Do you think a damn one of them would? Do you think one of them would? I wouldn't count on it. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't depend on that. I mean, where are the, where are these? T- I'd love to know where these tough white guys are that are fighting. Now, I would say, you know, you watch on Instagram, and you'll see the one percent, or Facebook, you'll see these weightlifters. You'll see the guys shooting their guns, or ex special forces guys. Now, you know, there are a percentage, and I know a lot of them. You know, through sword X and all. There are percentage of white guys that will whip your butt, but it's a small percentage, a real small percentage of the whole general population. I, I've done an informal study now for the past three years, and you'll hear some of these people talking about fighting back, and I'll ask them a very simple question. Have you ever been in a fight? And 99% of the white guys I talk to have never thrown a punch or been hit by a punch. So I don't know what Tucker's talk, talking about. I bet you Tucker Carlson's never been in a fight. <laughs> you know what I mean? I can almost bet, I'd almost bet the farm that Tucker Carlson has never been punched and Tucker Carlson's never thrown a punch. You know what I'm saying? And Hannity talks like he's so kind of a badass, and I'm pretty sure you can knock him over with a Q-tip too. So the whole thing's a joke, and it's just another way, like Rujan says, let's pay Tucker $20 million. That's a small price to maybe keep keep Trump out of uh, the White House. That's all it is. Thank they you. Tuck off, not the home, so Trump won't, run, won't be able to win. Thank you, Breeze. Did Breeze just say he did an informal survey? <laughs> <laughs> did he say that? He so. said, I've done it over the years. I've done an informal survey about how many white guys have actually been in a fight and how many would be, be willing to get in a fight. I mean, I don't want to get in a fight, but I'm, you know, I'm going to defend what I think is worthy of defending. And um, yeah, I... I once again, guys, the New York Times reported some of this. I'm speculating on some of this other. I mean, there's a definite report that Tucker Carlson um, sent a text to a producer that said it's not how white men fight. That alarmed the Fox board. At some, and I, and I mean, it doesn't go into specificity about how they found out, but a text message sent by Tucker Carlson, I mean, the New York Times says set off a panic at the highest levels of Fox on the eve. I don't know if that's the day before. They're saying that, you know, once again, is it, say, literally or figuratively. I mean, the eve could be a day or two or three before the Dominion trial was to begin. Um, and, you know, that they, they said, and here's the Times reporting, 
Um, the host sharing his private inflammatory views about violence and race. Now, now I don't, I don't, it doesn't insinuate that to me, but once again, I grew up in Pamplico. I mean, I didn't go to Vanderbilt. I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't go to Yale. I don't wear a Patagonia um, sweater vest every day when I'm, when I'm delivering um, uh, tulips in my, in my Subaru or Volvo. I mean, I, I, just, I ain't that kind of dude. I mean, Breeze and I go way back. I know what kind of dude Breeze is. I think Breeze um, kind of knows what kind of dude uh, I am. But the, the point I'm trying to make, and here's where I'm totally speculative. I don't have any information. Of course, the New York Times um, doesn't insinuate this. But I'm arguing that one of the reasons the Fox board got so involved, and I mean, we, we know where Paul Ryan stands. Paul Ryan said that if Trump is the nominee, I'm not going to the convention. It's in Wisconsin, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And, and Paul Ryan said publicly, if Trump's the nominee, I mean, that, that there's a former Republican Speaker of the House, a former Republican vice presidential candidate proclaiming publicly that if Trump's the nominee, I'm not going to the, to the event. I mean, so he's letting you know exactly where he stands yeah, in no regards doubt. to America first there. So why wouldn't I speculate there? I mean, why wouldn't I uh, kind of go down that road and give an opinion about that potential reality? I don't know that it's true. I mean, I know the Fox board got nervous about this text, but I don't know, what, what, you know, who on the Fox board got the most nervous. I do know who's obviously um, got a lot to gain or lose. And if Paul Ryan is on the board at Fox and Ryan can convince some of the executives or some of the board members that, you know, pay Tucker his money, keep him off the airways. Now, let me ask you this. I mean, Tucker's life is better being paid to do nothing. I mean, Tucker does a podcast for Fox Nation. He does the show for Fox News. He's paid 20, roughly $20 million a year to do both. So Tucker's life is is much more um, at ease or at peace by not going to work and collecting $20 million in annual compensation. So let's say for a year and a half, Tucker collects $30 million. Do you not believe that Paul Ryan thinks $30 million is a small price to pay to make sure Trump doesn't get reelected? And do you not believe that Tucker is one of the leading advocates for America first? I mean, Tucker has expressed very candidly his disdain for Trump. I mean, somebody said he's hypocritical. I don't buy that. I don't know that Tucker's ever said much complimentary about Donald Trump. I mean, he said publicly and privately, I don't like the guy. I mean, I wish there were another messenger. But, but the message is real because I think there's one place where Tucker said he's vulgar. Uh, what, what is it? He's vulgar, indecent, irreverent, and right. But that's kind of the way Tucker's quantified where, where Trump lands in the American political spectrum. He's vulgar. He's indecent. He's irreverent. Um, I mean, I think he's indecent, irreverent. I don't know if he's vulgar or not. I don't know the Trump. I mean, there's a couple of things he said publicly that he thought was were being said. Pri- Let me ask you this. When Tucker, excuse me, when Trump speaks to the, to the, um, remember the Bush guy, when he said, you grab my, well, you know, and, and uh, made headlines oh, saying, yeah. I mean, do you believe he's the only politician to ever say anything that vulgar? Really? I mean, do you not believe Republicans and Democrats say vulgar things like that amongst cohorts and friends in private? Of course they do. I mean, I'm not saying it's dude talk and I'm not, I'm not con- condoning it. But, but it happens that I believe Trump's the only guy that speaks in that fashion or manner is absurd. Um, a, a lot of guys have said things like that for whatever reason. I don't know. I mean, is it a kind of an ego uh, testosterone fix they need to say things like that? I don't have any idea. I do know this. 
that Trump is less likely to win in November of 2024 if Tucker's not rallying the troops every night at 8 o'clock. So I think it is easy to believe that Paul Ryan could have something to do with it, and they would consider that a good investment. $30 million. Who has the most to gain? I mean, you know, we, we can Google the Fox board. Who has the most to gain by Trump not winning? Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan is a part of this institutionalized conservatism. And he believes that promoting the institution of conservatism is more important than implementing ideas. Remember a couple of days ago, Rev, you were gone, but earlier this week, we talked a lot about um, these institutional power centers in America. And I made notes. I read an article of American Greatness, gave them credit. Uh, conservatives lost the culture war and the Trump agenda is the only path forward. That's the name of the article if you want to Google it. But but it talks a lot about this um th- this 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 historical belief that there's a moral majority. The moral majority will eventually win out. And, and the point I try to make was um, we use Matt Walsh as an example. So Matt Walsh is enormously popular on social media. I mean, he's got millions of followers. He does a YouTube. He's a bright man. He's articulate. He's on our side, so to speak, of some of the culture war issues. And he does this bit called what is a woman and he goes out and asks people what is a woman and um you know we're, we're i think charles said yesterday you know a supreme court justice couldn't tell us what a woman is because she's not a biologist well i'm not a biologist but i get the xx and xy chromosome i know how um, to say okay you're a dude and you're not um there's some science involved uh, in that but but matt walsh and what is a woman has obviously scored debate points I mean, it makes, it makes those who don't believe in the XY chromosome or the XX chromosome, it makes you look a little bit silly. What is a woman? Well, I don't know. I'm not a biologist. Well, that's a dumb answer. <laughs> but that's a particular dumb answer for someone nominated to be on the U.S. Supreme Court. But, but it's where we are in America. But, but here's what's happened. So, so the, the left has taken control of all these institutional power centers, and we're busy scoring debate points online with Matt Walsh, um, kind of currying favor and high-fiving one another. Hey, you seen that Matt Walsh video where he asked those people, what is a woman? But but what are we doing about imposing our beliefs on the system? We're not doing any of that. And that's why Trump became our nominee. We, we watched Paul Ryan and Mitt Romney and John McCain and Bob Dole and the Bushes. We watched them... Um, subserving it to the institution of conservatism, the mindset of conservatism, but we didn't see any, we lost the war. I mean, in every battle we fought, once again, I use as an example, Rev, in, in 2008, Prop 8 was, was voted up. I mean, Prop 8 was basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, Prop 8 was a defense of, um, of traditional marriage. I mean, it was in opposition to same-sex marriage. Should man be allowed to marry fellow man? Should woman be allowed to marry fellow woman? The same people that voted for Nine Feinstein, the same people that voted for Nancy Pelosi, the same people that voted for Kamala Harris, the same people that voted for Barack Obama said no. I mean, a marriage should between, be between a man and a woman. I mean, it was a, um, a thumbs-down to same-sex marriage, and that's in 2008. Well, in 2015 or 16, I think it might have been 15 or 16, the U.S. Supreme Court affirmed same-sex marriage. So, so we're, we're busy scoring debate points, subservient to the institution of conservatism, and the left has taken control of all these inter- institutional uh, power centers in America, and they've 
you know, imposed their beliefs on you. They've imposed their values on you. We've lost the culture war. And maybe Breeze is on to something. Maybe our unwillingness to fight. And I'm not talking about white particular in people or white people in particular. I'm talking about those who believe in conservatives. I mean, the, the, those who believe in America first. Not now, you know, the Paul Ryans of the world would, would believe that the Trump crowd is too rambunctious. The, the Trump crowd is too out of control. I mean, those, those Trump guys, man, they show up at those rallies, and next thing you know, that there's some trouble. And that's not what we're about. No, what you're about is a subservience to the institution of conservatism, not the enacting of ideas, not the imposing of beliefs. Why don't we have control of the institutional power centers? Because we've been too busy serving the institution of conservatism instead of imposing yeah, and then what are you going to do with it when you do get control? Well, I mean, well, that's what J.D. Vance says. You know, what do we do? Now, I'll give Kevin McCarthy credit. I mean, I'll, I'll give Speaker McCarthy a lot of credit here. We, we posed that question a year ago. What are you going to do as Speaker of the House if you're given an opportunity to be in charge? And he answered the bell. I mean, he, he proposed and, and, and figured out a way to whip his, um, his caucus into in line, and they got a, a, um, a debt limit increase passed with contingencies. I believe there's a um, – I think the Joe Manchin of the world are in a box. They're in a fix. Um, so, so, you know, in McCarthy's case, I gave him a little credit. I mean, he, he was able to lean on his membership – to get a, uh, a spending bill, well, it's not a spending bill, a debt limit bill or debt ceiling bill, raising the debt ceiling contingent upon, you know, going back to 2022 speeding limit, spending limits and only allowing 1% increases annually. I mean, that's a win. That's imposing beliefs. What, what do conservatives historically believe? You got to constrain spending. You got to demonstrate fiscal restraint. So, so, so Paul Ryan is on the board at Fox beholden to the institution of conservatism and, and the institution of conservatism includes lobbyists and consultants and and world economic forum attendees but they, you know they, they're they're hypothetical excuse me they're philosophically and ideologically aligned but their worlds collide that the philosophical ideological bent of someone at the world economic forum uh you know that they've studied um atlas shrugged they've i mean they they've, they've read george will since they were a kid they were, read everything William Buckley ever said. They believe in the theory of conservative government. They believe in the theory of Jeffersonian government, limited government, less of a, of a central. They believe in that, but it's far too rewarding to not act upon that. And that's the institution of conservatism. It's almost an empty vessel. I mean, it's an ideological, philosophical place that we land. But there's no action taken. And what Tucker basically did was, I mean, not directly, but indirectly collaborating with the Trump world and the Trump orbit saying, I'm tired of serving the institution of conservatism. I'm tired of pledging allegiance to neoconservatism. I don't know where I land now in the grand scheme of things when it comes to how conservative, how liberal, how pragmatic, how centrist. I'm not interested in that. Is the policy good for the American worker, the American family, and the American way of life? And if so, I'm for it. But Joe Manchin's for it. I don't care. But Joe Manchin's not been subservient to the institution of conservatism long enough. I don't care. Bernie Sanders is for it. It doesn't matter to me who's for it or who's against it. Does it advance the, the livelihoods of the American worker, the American family, the American way of life? Tell me 
where the institution of conservatism, and I'll talk about the Bush doctrine, the Romney doctrine, uh, the McCain doctrine. Tell me where Romney, Bush, or McCain proposed imposing their beliefs in a way or their pol political philosophies in a way that was going to make life better for the American worker, the American family, or the American way of life. You can't. I mean, there wasn't a nickel's worth of difference between the institution of conservatism and, and liberal policy. I mean, I get the philosophical disagreement. I understand that. I mean, there's an ideological difference that, that I have with Jeff and, and, and Jeff has with Charles. And I mean, and we've debated some of those things, but, but, but at the end of the day, why does the, the American political left have control of wall street? I mean, that was kind of the last safe haven. Wall street is now, uh, I, I said last week, I'm excuse me. I said it earlier this week, Rev, give me a fortune 500 CEO that would denounce transgender surgery for minors. Find me a single CEO of a Fortune 500 company that would publicly denounce transgender surgery for minor children. You know how many? None. Why? Because he's scared to. He's afraid to. Because he knows the American political left will punish you via some of these institutional power centers that they've commandeered complete and total control over. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Another big story today that I think we should pay close attention to, probably the biggest story of the day in our lives, because once again, Paul Ryan of the board at Fox, I mean, we suspect, well, let me back up, that's unfair. I suspect that Ryan had a hand in leaning on fellow board members and getting Tucker off the air because Trump's not anywhere near as viable a candidate if Tucker's off the air. I mean, it's just not. Um, Tucker and Trump are kindred spirits. Uh, they may say it in a very different way. Um, they may not care much for one another. But, but at the end of the day, the Trump presidency will include uh, a high degree of America first. The success Tucker had on the, on the airwaves, uh, television, was a kind of an America first centric um, message. I want to go to another story that I think is going to be important for a lot of different reasons. The Fed will meet today. The Fed's open market committee will probably raise interest rates by another uh, one quarter of 1%, 25 basis points. That will be the 11th, excuse me, the 10th increase since March of 2022. Wow. I mean, that's aggressive raising of rates. Here's the issue, Reb. And I mean, th those who know a little bit about the economy, as I do, uh, understand this. So the Fed made it a priority to combat inflation. I mean, we, we increased the money supply in America by 40% since COVID. I mean, imagine that. We, we've accumulated about $6.3 extra dollars in federal debt by the government's reactions uh, to COVID. Well, forget vaccines and anti-vaxxers and side effects and lockdowns and shutdowns. We printed about 40% new currency, fiat currency, not, not, by, by, not backed by any fixed fiscal asset. So it's make-believe money, in all honesty. It created hyperinflation. Um, and when, when you say we, you mean the 535 members of Congress and the president? Well, I mean, uh, uh, the Fed. But I, I mean, mean they, they created well, the, I mean, it's they kind spent of a combination. the money. Yeah. Well, I mean, they you're appropriated. right. The, the Fed was, no, it's some of it. The, the, the Congress doesn't quantitative ease. The, the, the Congress doesn't buy mortgage-backed securities. They don't buy T-bills. I mean, the Fed chooses to do that. 
So the Fed increased its balance sheet from $6 trillion. I mean, imagine before 2008, the Fed's balance sheet had never been north of $2 trillion. Historically, it had been less than $1 trillion. It's not been less than $7 trillion. It's not been less than about $6 trillion since the world blew up in 2008. So we've had, you know, artificially low interest rates. We had a very activist Fed. But to your point, yeah, the CARES Act, the American Rescue Plan, CARES 1 and 2, the American Rescue Plan, those were policy decisions made by the United States Congress. Some voted for, some voted against. But but between Congress and the Fed, we we've, we put about $6.3 trillion of extra liquidity into the economy that, re, oh, that led to rampant and out-of-control inflation. And the Fed, who had a hand in creating the inflation, is trying to you know deal with the inflation the best way they know how. That the absurdity of inflation is transitory should disqualify anybody from holding a job as important and consequential as Jerome Powell holds. But who am I? I'm a college dropout from a town with no stoplight. But anyway, um, Powell probably today will will announce a um, a raising of rates at 25 basis points. A lot of a lot of investments or a lot of investors and Wall Streeters are interested in does his comments lead us to believe he's done. Or does his comments lead us to believe that he continually is in hot pursuit of inflation? Um, because in all honesty, most of the measures I've read, they've not solved the problem of inflation. Here's the issue. It's, and this is where it gets a little bit complicated. So the Fed has raised rates 10 times since March of 2022 um, trying to deal with inflation. The Fed created inflation along with Congress by dumping all this new liquidity into the economy, um, supply and demand, simple philosophy. Uh, you know, we um, we suppress demand by shutting and locking down businesses and, and ways of life, and we increase the money supply. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not an educated economist by any stretch, but if you constrain production, increase the supply of money, guess what? There, you're creating an economic imbalance there, and you're going to have hyperinflation. Macroeconomic stimulus will always lead to hyperinflation. When you macro stimulate and constrain production by lockdowns and shutdowns, you, you've got a doubly, triply, quadruply problem. So here we are um, in the most inflated economy I've ever lived in. I mean, I'm thinking about going out to eat. I mean, it, it's, it's unbelievable how much it costs to do the things that I enjoy to do. Um, now they say they're making some headway, but but it's very slow. Here's the concern, and here's where it gets a little bit complicated, and, and here's where you got to stick with me for a second. So as the Fed raises rates again, some of the floating rates, some of the adjustable mortgages will, will, will adjust again. And, and this really goes back to Horry County. Stick with me for a second. I'll get you to Horry County. So you've got the Fed and Congress printing money, dumping an abundance of liquidity into an economy that was, you know, constraining its production. During the lockdowns and shutdowns, you had office buildings empty, people working from home, remote work, Zoom meetings, um, digital town squares. I mean, out of that came, I mean, in every economic calamity, there's winners and losers. Um, there's some winners. Zoom would be a winner. Um, another company that hosts these virtual meetings and conference calls. I mean, they would be, but but out of that came uh, an abundance of empty office and and commercial space. 
I mean, their entire office buildings in San Francisco, Los Angeles, um, Austin, Texas, Dallas, uh, Philadelphia, some of the major metropolitan areas, people left the business, left the office buildings and they aren't going back. So the mortgages on those businesses are heading to default. And you've got an increase in interest rates. So to service the adjustable mortgages on the commercial debt, Charlie Munger um, said this from a wheelchair at 100 years old the other day, that um, this is going to force a lot of banks to make really, really, really uh, tough decisions. We talked about the, um, uh, you and I, we did a show several, I don't know, months ago about the, um, the Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank, their mismatch investment portfolio. They had invested depositors' money in a um, in a way that they, they thought interest rates would stay somewhat artificially low. When the Fed raised rates ten times since March of 2022, it led to a, a kind of a um a, a misalignment of or a misbalance, an imbalance of um of what the what the the maturity value of the security is and what the market value of the security is. I'll give an example. Today at Schwab, I read this in Bloomberg yesterday. Today at Schwab, their held to maturity value and their market value is $14 billion apart. That's a scary number. That's in one financial firm. At Charles Schwab, you've got, a, you've got an investment portfolio. And, I mean, if you hold it to maturity, it's worth X. The market value, because once again, the, the 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 misalignment of investment strategy in a raised market. Remember what we said, uh, Rev, or I said, I say, we, well, I said that the problem to me was the people making decisions for banks and never had to make that decision in a raised interest rate or a raising interest rate environment or a normal environment. Yeah, or a normal in a interest. Uh, there you go. Yeah. I mean, if you're if you're a forty year old um, and been in banking since two thousand eight, you've never really banked or you've never made investment decisions when the Fed was raising rates. So this is new to you. Well, at Schwab, there's a $14 billion misalignment. In other words, if they had to sell those securities today, they would be worth $14 billion less than if they were held to maturity. Now they may be, you know, okay and hold to maturity. But but what if they don't? Schwab's just one bank. Munger believes, as I do, that there are many, 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 many regional banks out there heavily invested in commercial property that have this misalignment of, of you know, what what do we do in a raised interest rate environment? Now, we saw First Republic get taken over by J.P. Morgan. Remember, uh, too big to fail gets bigger, um, right? And J.P. Morgan gets bigger Apparently. than it's ever been by taking over, what, $92, billion, um dollars in, um, you know, in a portfolio that was troubled because, once again, they made some pretty bad decisions in – uh, hedging their investment strategy uh, on a raised interest rate. Here's the concern I have. This goes to Horry County. If Horry County is gaining 48 people a day, I mean, they're not. I mean, they're not coming from Mars. I mean, they're coming from major metropolitan area. The the, the seven largest cities in America have lost about 3.2 million people in population. Those people went to work in office buildings. Those people shopped at shopping centers. Those people participated in those economies of those major American cities, and we've had an exodus. I mean, I could be real political and say it's mostly liberal cities. I will. It's mostly liberal cities. It's San Francisco. 
I mean, it's really the state of California, the state of New York, uh, the state of New Jersey. We're seeing a big decrease in population. Uh, I think they're all moving to Horry County. Uh, I guess the people in Las Vegas think they're all moving to Las Vegas. The people in uh, Texas believe they're all moving to Texas, but they're leaving those areas. I think there's, and Munger believes this, Munger believes there are trillions of dollars of debt that will eventually go bad but because the, the office building that's empty that has a $300 million mortgage, I mean, you can't refinance but so much. And when you refinance, you're refinancing at an interest rate 2.5% higher than the previous interest rate. So that is what is deeply concerning to a lot of people who understand, um, I don't say the macro economy, but micros within within the economy. And, I mean, it's a, when, when I see the population increase in Horry County, once again, those people didn't come from Mars. They didn't come out of the ocean. I mean, they left somewhere to move there. And we've seen uh, big increases in population in Tennessee, big increases in North Carolina, big increases in South Carolina, big increases in Texas, big increases in Florida. Once again, kind of a red state, blue state phenomenon here. But the majority of these people are living, leaving major American cities they were earning a living in major American cities. Many were working in office buildings and commercial properties in many American cities that are financed by regional banks. So the combination of the regional bank owning debt on office buildings that are one half occupied, the office building, I mean, the guy can't pay his debt. I mean, he tells the bank, look, at 70% occupied, I could pay you. At 90% occupied, I'm making a lot of money. At 50% occupied, I can't even pay you the debt. So here's the building. Well, I mean, all of a sudden you're selling a building for 50 cent on the dollar. Can the bank write off that much? That That's kind of where we can the bank write off that much bad debt combined with a mismatch investment portfolio that they didn't see coming because once again, the Fed has raised rates. So that's where the Fed is. But I mean, the Fed's in a quandary. The Fed knows that it's not made as much progress combating inflation as it needed to. But the Fed also knows there's a segment of the economy, and there are many, 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 many regional banks out there that I think are teetering into the abyss. I mean, if I know that, the Fed knows it. I mean, rest assured. So when the Fed makes a decision today, will it decide? Uh, here we go. Uh, you want to be real provocative? Will it side with the bankers, or will it side with the workers? Because if it stays after it and it continues to raise rates like Volcker did, you know, with the Carter uh, administration, if well, the, the Reagan, I mean, if, if, if the Fed chair stays the course and continues to look after the American worker in regards to inflation, the average American's paying a lot more for the same thing that they were pre-COVID. I mean, that's, you, you're making less money. You didn't get a cut at pay, but you're making less money today than you did before COVID hits. But the banks are in, or I think, that there are more banks than we can imagine. I mean, I think there's a couple of dozen regional banks that are in trouble. And if the Fed continues to raise rates and they have to continue to resituate debt at an even higher interest rate than today, the debt goes bad. And how much of that bad debt can a regional bank write off combined with this mismatch investment portfolio of not hedging their bets enough on the Fed rate? So it's kind of, I mean, it's a quandary. It's conundrum, shall you say. And Powell's got a hard job. Now, Now, in fairness, Powell helped create this problem by leaving rates as low as he did for as long as he did, allowing the Fed's balance sheet to remain over $6 trillion for as long as he did. Um, 
will he quantitate when he continue quantitative tightening um will the fed open markets committee suggest that this is the last uh, rate hike how many of you believe we've addressed inflation i mean how many feel relieved by inflation i don't i mean I, you know i'm looking at things today and it's hard for me to believe how much they cost how much more expensive it is to do this or to buy that today than it was you know pre-covid but that's what happens when you you know dump 6.3 trillion dollars of liquidity into an economy while constricting or constraining um production and it's i mean it's a complicated situation and i mean i don't know how many regional i don't know what regional banks are in trouble but i think there are a lot of regional banks out there that, that are kind of crossing their fingers that the fed will choose the the more dovish approach than the more hawkish approach because their livelihood and existence depends on it there, there's kind of an economics lesson uh, this morning so the fed's meeting today I mean, they're going to raise rates one quarter of 1%. The market says 97%. That's going to happen. But what are their comments? Do the comments of Jerome Powell lead the market to believe this is the end? And by the by the end of the year, we'll start, you know, with um, with cutting rates. But that does nothing to inflation. And inflation has been far more complicated than they ever, ever imagined. And I'm not saying, I mean, if I wanted to be just absolutely insanely provocative i'd say hey today the fed decides whether the side with the regional banks or are we the people let's see what the fed it's not that simple i mean it's it's more complicated than that but but if they choose to to raise rates and say that's it i, I don't think it's anywhere near enough to deal with inflation and i predict you ready here i go too far down this road that i know very little about i predict that the new target rate for inflation is three and a half to four percent we're just going to have to accept that things are going to be more expensive. I mean, historically, it's been 2%. But I think the Fed is, I think they've already said this behind closed doors. Hey, forget two. We've got to condition the American public to believe the new number is 35 or 4%. Because if we do all we can to get inflation back to 2%, we're going to run half the regional banks in America out of business. Take a break. Back in a few. I don't know if you saw this story or not. It's not a major story, but it's kind of an interesting story. And it's a story that I can tell you. Uh, what the oil company should do. Um, Ford announced its earnings. They made a lot of money on gas-powered pickups. I mean, they made a lot of money on um, the internal combustion engine. It, it's kind of interesting because in the Ford report, it, it, it doesn't say this, but you can read between the lines if you're good at math like I am. And um, <laughs> you, you, you can discern that the government subsidized electric vehicles. People still don't want them. So the internal combustion engine subsidized the balance of electric vehicles, and people still don't want them. In other words, Ford is having to increase the price of their internal combustion engine. I mean, I would imagine GM's the same way. Um, I'm, I'm picking on Ford because they released their financial um, statements yesterday. They made uh, $2.9 billion, so much per share. Um, and you got to get digging in and, and read some of the in-between lines. But but anyway, so the government is subsidizing electric vehicles, and people still don't want them. They lost a lot of money on EVs. They made a lot of money on internal combustion engines. And some of the money they made on the internal combustion engine was designed to offset some of the, some of the money they knew they were going to lose on EVs. I think it's fair to ask this question. And I think it's fair to have this debate. I mean, there are some people out there who believe 
that six months ago we were at peak EV. Now, Elon Musk doesn't buy that. I mean, he thinks this is revolutionary. He thinks this is the path forward. He believes that sooner or later, you know, 75% of the cars driven on American highways and byways will be the electric vehicle. I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea what the future holds for EVs, what the future holds for the internal combustion engine. We do know that the federal government, the American government, for that matter, is waging war on the fossil fuel industry. I mean, I don't think that's an overstatement. They're made unbelievably complicated to pursue fossil fuel, carbon-based um, energy. China, not so much. Russia, obviously not so much. And um, when you think about the, the competing economies, yeah, I was thinking about you know um, quantitative ease and quantitative tightness, synthetic derivatives. We're waiting on the Fed to do X or Y or Z. In China, they're manufacturing. In Russia, they're producing energy. And in America, we're waiting on to see, you know, can the bank sustain the stress test of X, Y, or Z because of all these creative financialization opportunities we provided for Wall Streeters and uh, the investment class. So the financialization economy is going to end up having to compete with the manufacturing economy and the energy producing economy. And I mean, I'm a dumb old country boy, but I'm betting on manufacturing and energy production before I bet on the financialization of a uh, of an economy like America's, but that's kind of where we are. But but stick with me for a second. So once again, I would imagine GM's in the same boat. I mean, one's not. You know, I mean, they're, they're different, obviously, and one has the upper hand for a little while, then the other has uh, an upper hand for the other. But two of the iconic brands in American business and commerce is Ford and GM. I mean, they're they are basically. I mean, they're they're lighthouses. They 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 shine brightly over the American. Uh, economic horizon and when ford does well america does well when gm does well america does well. well well ford did amazingly well in the internal combustion engine and and if you read between the lines in the financial reporting their intent was i mean they're basically admitting that there, there's no way right now to be profitable with evs there's just no way they're cutting pricing but they're also transferring profit from the the ice the internal combustion engine to the EV to make it look like they didn't lose as much money as they really did. So not only is the government incentivizing people to buy electric vehicles, Ford indirectly is incentivizing people to buy electric vehicles, or at least their shareholders, that they're probably getting shareholders solace from uh, why are we making so many electric cars if nobody wants them? Why are we making so many electric cars if we lose money on the ones that, that we are selling? And, and once again, I think it's fair to put on the table uh, peak EV. It, it it concerns me. I'll get out of the box for a second. It concerns me that so many states are making such a big financial commitment to the electric vehicle industry. I mean, Florence, Envision, I don't want to throw anybody under the table because I don't know the details and specifics, but Florence is making a big bet. And, and, and the area is making a big bet. The state, for that matter, is making a big bet on electric vehicles. And I'm not sure we have with clarity where we're headed. Can the government dictate what people drive? I mean, in essence, that's the question we're asking ourselves. Can the government dictate whether the public decides to drive an internal combustion engine or an electric vehicle? Because the consumer seems to have spoken through the way they purchase the internal combustion, the Ford truck, for example. They don't want the electric vehicle. Now, they may improve, right? that they may get better at it. That they, and once again, that's an open-ended question. You don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. But we're making big-ass bets. I mean, we're making unbelievably big bets 
And the reason we're making those bets, I think, I mean, there is no data out there that says the public wants electric vehicles. So I'll put myself here. I'm going to probably offend some politicians locally. But if I'm a member of Florence County Council or our state delegation, and they're all friends of mine, you know that, good friends of mine, dear friends of mine, I've got to ask that question on behalf of the taxpayer. Are we making a good investment? What about this investment? I mean, I understand jobs. I understand uh, economic investments. I understand capital. I mean, I get all that, I, and I don't dismiss nor discounting any of that. But but are we making a generational bet on something that we have a lot of unanswered questions to? And when I read the Ford report, and I didn't read it verbatim, but I read some of the synopsis, some of the summary, CNBC, Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, all had interesting articles and things to say about the Ford report. They all were very polite, but they basically said people don't want the electric car, despite the government subsidizing and incentivizing, and now Ford kind of shifting profits around to make it look like the EV isn't losing as much money as it is. So the internal combustion engine and the federal government are subsidizing the EV, and people still aren't buying it. Now, now will they? That's the question, and I don't know the answer um, to that. Um, We've got an issue with a washing machine at my house. I went yesterday somewhere to look at a at a washing machine, and there was uh, the Tesla charging stations. There are, what, 20 stations? There was one car. I mean, that, you know, that, that, that may be uh, an anomaly. That may be uh, anecdotal. I don't, I don't know. I don't have any idea. But we're not even asking that question. I mean, we've determined that the government has decided that the public is going to drive electric vehicles whether they want to or not. And you don't question the science. A little bit like climate change. How dare you question the science? I mean, the science is settled. The EV is the way forward. And I'm not convinced it is. Because once again, the internal combustion engine subsidized along with the government and the public still don't want it. So why don't the public want it? Are they nervous about EVs? Is it, you know, we don't have the infrastructure in place? I think these are fair questions. But have we had that debate? In typical American fashion, the government decides which way we're going, and, and a conforming public says, okay, that's good enough for me. I mean, the, the government said, you know, the, the government said, don't go to work. The government said, take the vaccine. The government said, do this. The government, and, and the majority of Americans do it. And all of a sudden, w- one of the most dependable uh, amenities in life you know, transportation, affordable transportation, and fossil fuels historically have been very affordable. The internal combustion engine, by and large, has been very dependable. I mean, it's moved uh, cruise ships along the ocean. It's moved cargo ships across the seas. It's, you know, planes have flown from sea to shining sea around the world. Uh, Farmers have um, harvested crops based on, you know, an economy powered by fossil fuel. I mean, I get in my truck, you get in your car, he gets in his, we turn the key, it cranks up, we go, we do what we want, we live very portable lifestyles, and the government says, that's not the way we want you to travel. That's not the way we want to power the economy. And we've never had a complicated conversation. How are we going to do that, guys? How are we going to transition? Something as monumental as transportation. How are we going to just let the government decide that we're no longer going to do it this way because here's a better way? Based on what? I mean, here's a better way based on what? And it really goes back to climate change. You know, I mean, we, we believe this is better for the climate. No, we, we, we know this is better for the climate. There's no belief. There's no um, suspecting. Uh, it, we, we know that this is better for the climate. And, and we're making these huge bets. 
I mean, the, the, these monumental decisions based on things that we've not even had a debate about. And, and, I, and I guess that's the, you know, kind of the concept I'm trying to bring forth is let's debate some of these issues, yeah, guys. Barack Obama said the science is settled. So what are you doing? So if the science <laughs> is settled on climate change and a non-scientist said that, mm-hmm. but he's a, he's a great orator. Sure. Uh, it doesn't matter if he's right or wrong. How did he say it uh, means more. If he says things eloquently and articulately, then they must be true, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they got to be true. That guy would lie to us. Look how much he loves his kids. And I mean, you see him shoot basketball with his. I mean, <laughs> that guy's not gonna lie to us. I mean, he's a he's a he's a he's an altruistic soul. He's out for oh, yeah. making the world a better place. But but I mean, think about this. So so we're making a decision on how we're gonna heat our home, cool our home, power our economy. It, it kind of trickles down to automobiles and and personal transportation or or corporate transportation. I'm talking about jets and you know and um and and trains and uh, all these other and I'm not I'm not dismissing it. I'm not saying hey let's stop the technological advancements right now. I mean I'm all on board with figuring out a better way to get us from point A to point B. I'm fig- I'm all about figuring out a better way to not depend on uh, the Saudi prince or the Saudi oil minister. I mean I'm all about that. But are we answering the questions that need to be answered? No, we're not. Because in, in typical fashion, and this is where we are in America today, the government decides which direction we're headed, and then we kind of, um, you know, okay, I don't want any trouble from the government. You know how they are. I mean, that, that they can put you in your place if you aren't careful. So the government says, um, no more gas for you. And well, okay. I mean, what, what, what do I do now? Okay, but I tell you, the government says they'll give you $7,500 in tax credits. You know, the, and then Ford says, wow, this isn't working like we thought. People don't want these things, and we can't make money on these things. When It's kind of a beautiful thing that Ford didn't sell but so many. I mean, imagine selling a product. When you sell more of you lose more money. I mean, you're, you're losing $1,100 per Mustang. Uh, I'd rather sell one Mustang and, one, and lose 1100 <laughs> than sell two and lose 2200 or three and lose um, thirty three hundred, and I just it concerns me, and, and I do think about here at home, and I think about the Envision plant, and I think about the big announcement at all these jobs that'll be created, and I hope it all works out, and I and I hope that there were conversations in those rooms that obviously I'm not included that questions were asked about long term sustainability, uh, potential sales, how many how many um, BMW electric vehicles do we believe they'll sell? Once the government gets out of the business of incentivizing the marketplace or distorting the marketplace with incentives, and and it's just, it's kind of an interesting dynamic and dilemma. Um, but it leads me to this: uh, the Supreme Court m- made a, a a decision to not uh, hear appeals by major oil companies. I mean, they, they're basically trying to move some of these lawsuits against the fossil fuel industry from state to federal court. In other words, if you're Exxon, you'd rather fight in a federal court than you had the Ninth District of California. I mean, good luck with that. You walk into a courtroom in the Ninth District of California, say, hey, I'm the CEO of Exxon. Guilty. Of what? Every damn thing. I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, you're the CEO of Exxon. That's guilty enough. You, you know what I'm saying? Um, so, so that's kind of, um, so, so anyway, Sad the, um, the, the Supreme Court said that if you're if you if you're to be sued for climate change, you can be sued in state court, and the state judges will hear it. That's bad for oil. I mean, oil would rather that be dealt with at the Supreme Court. Um, and then you, I mean, you got a lot of cases here. Um, 
I'll read it verbatim. You ready? The state and local plaintiffs, this is Washington Post, state and local plaintiffs were backed by the Biden administration is seeking to keep the lawsuits in state courts. Um, the Trump administration, I don't think it ever got legally challenged, but the Trump administration's position was um, the oil companies, if you're going to sue the oil companies, it's interstate commerce. You sue them in federal court, a little bit like the tobacco companies. Um, and and look, guys, the liberals look at oil companies like tobacco companies. I mean, they really and truly do. That's how they look at at oil companies today. Um, in 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 Baltimore in 2018, um, there was a suit filed in in Maryland state court in which the city had said, "I'm going to imagine this. I mean, this is a real. Um, this is a real. Uh, what about uh, you know." Uh, what, what is it called? Uh, a pleading? I mean, I'm not a lawyer. Is it a pleading when, when you state your case? Um, so so in, in 2018 in Baltimore, the Maryland State Court heard the case or heard the pleading from the city that it had suffered climate change-related injuries from rising sea levels and extreme weather. The city of Baltimore is seeking to recover monetary damages from companies who have allegedly contributed to climate change and misled the public. Now, th- th- there's kind of some ambiguity here. Public nuisance claims are a bit ambiguous and uncertain and, and abstract in some way, shape, or form. I've got the answer. I mean, th- th- if I were the CEO of Exxon, I would be guilty. There- there's no doubt about it. But when the city of Baltimore came to me and said, we're suing you for monetary damages relating to climate change, you know what I'd say? We're not selling any more gas in Maryland. No more gas. There you go. We're not selling another gallon of gas in the state of Maryland. I mean, you folks are accusing us of not giving a rat's ass about the climate, uh, of abusing our privileges to be profitable in the fossil fuel industry. So here's what we're doing. When a convenience store with an Exxon emblem calls us for gas, we're going to say we don't sell gas in Maryland. And we're going to try to talk Shell into it. And we're going to try to talk BP into it. And we're going to try to talk some of these um some of these um, secondary distributorships into, I mean, the big old companies would probably stick together. That would be the answer. Baltimore and, and Maryland have sued. I'm, I'm making up. I don't know if it's Exxon, but it's the, it's the oil producing, um, the oil producing industry seeking monetary or to recover monetary damages who say that they've, um, contributed to climate change and misled the public. No more misleading to the public. No more contributed to climate change in Maryland. Maryland, you don't get gas. Let's see how that works out. See, guys, sometimes you got to give them exactly what they want. And if the liberal in Maryland is suing or a liberal judge in Maryland or a liberal lawyer or a liberal, um, you know, legislative body in Maryland says, hey, we want some of your money because you're irresponsible and you're damaging the climate. Just don't sell gas in Maryland. And let's see how quick California sues. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe the liberal great. judges in California would say, hey, are we really going to follow through with this suit? Of course we are. It's the fossil fuel industry. They're destroying the planet. Uh, you know what happened in Maryland? No, I don't. What happened? Maryland sued and they stopped selling gas in Maryland. How would this California economy go if Exxon, Shell, BP, Chevron decided not to sell any gas in California? I mean, imagine that, guys. Sometimes you've got to give them... Exactly. You're talking about a public nuisance claim. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, ima- that imagine, would be fun to watch. Well, I mean, that, that would be hysterical to watch. But, but you know, once again, we've institutionalized our mindset instead of forcing our beliefs 
or enacting. I mean, if you're running an oil company, you know that the Democrats have declared war on you. I mean, you're, you're not public enemy number one because they've got so many public enemies. It's unbelievable. But but you would be on the list of public enemy number ones. So, so give them what they want. They don't want fossil fuels. They don't want burning gas. Just no gas, no diesel, no kerosene. You know, um, ride your Tesla to work. Put your stick your windmill up your behind and just hope for the best. Maybe you'll get where you want to get. Maybe you won't. Let, let's go to the phone. We have Daphne calling from Dillon. Daphne, you're live. Windmill up your behind. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate that. Uh, Ken, I want to bottom line it for you. Everything that the federal government and the radical left and the mealy mouth Republicans are doing are things to hurt the American people, okay? You, we were talking several weeks ago to our state representatives, and I asked the question about where the minerals were coming from that would uh, produce those lithium batteries in Florence. Now, my prediction is Florence is going to lose their shirt, because, in fact, the radical left will not allow any of the mining to get the minerals in the U.S. And all of those minerals are now in the possession of the Chinese Communist Party. It's almost like we are helping all the radicals in the Middle East and in China and in Russia not the American people. Think about what Texas, a big red state, did. They allowed 25% of their grid to go on solar and wind power. So China is producing the solar cells, and then they had the great freeze, and people lost their lives because they didn't have any backup. Now, they're having to build new gas plants, natural gas plants, to back up and have there uh, for 10% of the time and lose money. They're having to subsidize the green energy as well as the federal government subsidizing the green energy. So... When I ask you about, it's been almost a year ago, about the Act uh, 52 that was passed, and it was passed on the green energy advocacy for South Carolina. That's exactly where we're headed. They're doing it to red states as well. As the blue states are going along, the red states are just sitting back with their finger in their mouth. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Daphne. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Rev is trying to find something. Josh Hawley actually questioned um, a senior executive that might have been Department of Interior. Trying to find that. Let's take a break, Josh. We'll be back and hopefully have that ready to roll. Um, Talks about some of what we're talking about here this morning. Back in a few. Chairman, thanks to the witnesses for being here. Assistant Secretary Light, if I could just start with you. In the years leading up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, almost a year old now, many European governments prioritized what they called 
climate objectives. I'm not sure that their policies actually improve their environment, but that, that was their surmise, climate objectives over energy abundance. And uh, in particular, they prioritize cheap energy from an authoritarian regime over energy independence. Do you think that that playbook executed by governments in Europe is something we ought to be doing in the United States? I think that uh, the clear lesson is that no country should be beholden to one supplier for its energy sources or a very large proportion of its energy sources, and that energy security is built on energy diversification. I think that energy diversification is at the backbone of U.S. energy policy, and so I don't see any risk that the United States will follow suit in that respect. Well, you say energy security is built on energy diversification. I would have thought energy security would be based on energy independence. Am I wrong about that? I think it's independence, but I also think that uh, it's not just one source of energy because things can go wrong. Uh, no one should put all of their chips right on sort of one marker when it comes to energy security. So I think that to have as diverse a supply as possible while still looking at other goals like climate goals is a very good path forward for countries to take and it's something that the United States wants to support other countries in helping to do. Well, why wouldn't we put our chips on American energy? And we've got various sources of energy in this country. Why wouldn't we put our chips there? I think we are putting our chips there. No, we're not. We're producing less oil and gas in this country than we were previously. The president, when he came to office, his first day in office, he imposed a moratorium on oil and gas leases on federal land. Since then, he has leased the fewest acres of federal land for oil and natural <coughs> gas since the Truman administration. Why are we shutting down American oil and natural gas production, taking away American jobs, and making ourselves more dependent on foreign sources of energy? I don't understand this policy. Well, the U.S. will produce a record amount of both crude oil and natural gas in 2023, even higher than the spikes pre-COVID levels. And the president is actively encouraging U.S. oil producers to increase production and reinvest their profits back into production rather than buying back stocks. And I think that's the right policy to pursue. He's doing that while he is shutting down the ability to lease federal land for oil and natural gas, the fewest acres of federal land leased since the Truman administration. He's boasted about how he hopes that he just said in the State of the Union that we may not need American oil after another 10 years. I mean, what kind of a message does that send? Is that energy security? So any questions about leasing on federal land, I would direct to the Department of Interior, not the Department of Energy, sir. Oh, listen, don't play that game with me. We're talking here about energy production. Oil and natural gas are energy production. And the facts of the matter are this president has reduced our ability to be energy independent. And you're sitting here telling me that that increases our energy security. I, I don't, I, it looks just the opposite to me. It seems to me that you're recommending the European, European playbook, which left them dependent on foreign nations, left them dependent ultimately on hostile actors, and that's what you're trying to replicate here again in the United States. I, I just don't understand why, that this is, why this course of action is being recommended, why your administration's pursuing it. I also don't understand why you would shut down pipelines that cancel thousands of good-paying American energy jobs. I mean, why is that a healthy energy policy for this country? Uh, with all due respect, sir, I really don't see much of a comparison between where Europe was before the outbreak of the war and their energy mix and where they were getting energy from and where the United States is today. Well, let me just ask you, on, just on the topic of dependence on authoritarian regimes, uh, about China. China is one of the largest processors of the materials that serve as the building blocks for many of the so-called green energy transition that the administration is pursuing. A according to the IEA, China processes 40% of the world's copper, more than 30% of the nickel in the world, 60% of cobalt, 60% of lithium, and more than 80% of rare earth materials, minerals rather. Now, in light of that, many commentators have speculated, suggested that the United States is even more dependent on China for key components of solar power panels, wind turbines, and batteries than Europe was on Russia in the lead up to the invasion of Ukraine. 
So I say again, in light of all of that, don't you think that this administration's climate agenda is making us more dependent on China while we lessen our reliance on our own domestic energy sources? Well, sir, as I said in my testimony before, I think you're absolutely right. China does own too much of the critical minerals supply chain from from the beginning, from beginning, from ownership of resources through processing and through the creation of modules and other sort of parts of clean energy components. So why would you want to make us more dependent on them? The tools that the Congress has given us, sir, to make sure that we diversify the supply chains, reshore as many of them, and create sound relationships with non-Chinese suppliers. That is absolutely a top priority of this administration. For heaven's sake, here's what here's what you've done. You you came to office. You took us from being an energy independent nation to being an energy dependent nation. You have made us more dependent. Now this administration's gone begging to OPEC and dictators all around the world. You have made us less energy secure. Now you're making us energy dependent on China. You're canceling good paying American jobs. It's a disaster, and all the while increasing the cost of energy across this nation. It is an absolute disaster, and I can't imagine why, in light of what happened in Ukraine, we would want to replicate those disastrous policies here. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. There, there's Josh Hawley. Um, kind of the interesting part of that is toward the end. That's what I wanted you to hear. When, when Hawley started talking about some of the um, – I mean, it's a professor is who it is. I mean, it's a college professor who was working in the Biden administration theorizing about what, you know, visions of sugar plums dancing uh, in his head. But critical mineral supply chain is something I've read a little bit about, made a note there a second ago. All of these um, materials that are required – to produce the electric vehicle, China controls. I mean, Ch- China, China kind of cornered the market on cobalt. Uh, so, so some of the lithium, I mean, China, uh, so Brazil, I mean, they, everybody but America. So we want clean energy, but we want the world to be polluted by foreign lands and our dependency on China. I mean, it's, it's bizarre to me. It's just, I mean, it, it's what happens when you put, with all due respect, and I mean this but with the utmost sincerity, college professors teach kids about certain things. Dr. Will Bolt was here yesterday, early American history professor, actually chair of the early American history department at Francis Marion, or the history department period at Francis Marion. I mean, I trust Dr. Bolt to properly and accurately articulate American history to kids. But I don't want college professors developing energy plans and programs and philosophies for the most powerful economy in the history of mankind. So when you go to critical mineral supply chain, that's what Daphne was talking about. Okay, let's say that I'm wrong. Let's say the electric vehicle does overtake the internal combustion engine. I've been wrong a lot in my life. I mean, that's not uh, unfathomable by any stretch of the imagination. Let's say that all the questions I have have been answered. I just hadn't been allowed to be in some of those in some of those closed door meetings when we're having a debate about what percentage of electric vehicles and and how affordable the electric vehicle and how much longer the subsidies need to exist. Let's assume that political leadership. Corporate America and, and 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 the government, excuse me, the um the, the bankers have been involved in all those conversations. But I mean, obviously, I've not been privileged uh, to that information. So let's say they're right, and the internal combustion engine is on its last leg, and the EV is going to usher in a new era of personal transportation. Where do we get the critical mineral supply chain? I mean, when do we address that? I mean, we're going to be more dependent on China a geopolitical adversary than we ever have been. I mean, we, we've, we've switched from being dependent upon Saudi Arabia in the Middle East to China. I would rather be dependent on Saudi Arabia in the Middle East because I don't perceive them to be the preeminent threat to our superpower status in, uh, in, in the global economy. 
and the global eco-political system. And I, it's bizarre to me that we've not done any more work than we have about this critical mineral supply chain. And the good professor basically said, you're right. You're right. I mean, China has cornered the market. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said, you're right, Senator. China has cornered That's the market scary. in the electrical mineral supply chain. I mean, we're going we're gonna to try to transition from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles, but you're right. If we do this, we're going to be more dependent on China for the critical mineral supply chain than we are the Middle East for um for oil. I mean that's that's how do we how could we be that asleep at the switch? Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. We have Jeff calling from Florence. Jeff, you're live. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Jeff. Um, so can uh, to get to the lithium ion first? Uh, are you aware of a company named Albemarle Corporation? I don't think I am. Okay. They're based in Charlotte, North Carolina. They were based in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and they're one of the leading producers of lithium ion in the world. It's a U.S.-based company. Um, when we talk about uh, the, the – Jeff, we're Jeff, losing you. Weird we, signal. Weird yeah, signal. Weird signal. Do this. Let's take a break. Get Jeff back on the phone. We can't hear a word he's saying. It's real gargled sounding but get to a better spot love to have jeff back on and um i'm sure disagree with the host eight four three six six one oh nine three seven back in a second call back jeff back in a second and some of the transcript with the good professor when discussing our energy dependence or independence um it talks about critical mineral supply chain the top 10 global producers of lithium lithium ion batteries in the world are all asian companies 60 percent china 26 percent korea 10% Japan. This is the transcript from the good professor's appearance before Josh Hawley of the Senate committee. So you got uh, 60 China, 26 Korea, 10 Japan. 96% of all lithium-ion batteries produced in the world today are produced in three countries. The U.S. ain't one of them. Let's go to the phone. 96%, guys, of all the lithium-ion batteries in the world today are being produced by China, Korea, and Japan, China at 60%. Let's go to the phone. Jeff, you're live. Yes. Hey, guys. Um, so to, to get back to that, yeah, China's a big producer of a lot of products. I mean, how many iPhones do you think percentage-wise are produced in China? But, I mean, I don't have to have an iPhone to get to work. <laughs> yeah, but you do have to communicate. Um, I got so, to commute. I got to commute before I communicate. <laughs> right. And, and you have an option, right? Because the free market still allows internal combustion engines and electric, right? For now, yeah. No, nobody's taking it away. Ah, I, mean, I, I mean, some I mean, Democrats have said they'd love to do that. Yeah. So, oh, sure they have. And, and some Republicans said they'd love to shred the Constitution, right? I think we're the ones that believe in the Constitution. Well, no, I mean, Trump said let's suspend it, right? Yeah, he did. I think the, the thesis behind the Constitution is limited government. I mean, if you my, ask my any constitutionalist is... what the theory is behind the Constitution— they, they would say limited government. I don't know how many Democrats believe in limited government. I, I'm, I'm, my point to you is you can find Democrats to say stupid things fair all enough. day long. Anecdotal is anecdotal. Fair, fair enough. I'll agree with that. Anecdotal okay. is anecdotal. Okay. Nobody's taking away your car. Okay. But Albemarle Corporation, based in Charlotte, North Carolina, is, is one of the largest producers of lithium. And, and it, they're the largest in the United States, but they're a world global player. 
you look at that list. Uh, does China have uh, the most lithium-ion uh, or deposits in the, or in, the, in the world? No, they don't. Where is it? It's in South America. And so when we talk about um, would you should we should we invest in relationships with Chile and Bolivia um, and and get rights get access to those minerals? We should, and we're competing against China to do that. We're and losing said, to China, Jeff. We're losing to China as competing for those rights. We, we are because we've pulled back from the global stage on on you know helping developing company countries get to a point where we can trade business partners. And you think that's what China's motivated by? China's motivated by being a global player? Yes, 100%. They're fighting for those natural resources and mineral rights in Africa and South America. You know, so... Jeff, do you agree with this? I'd love to get your opinion. Do you agree that China would love to replace us as the preeminent superpower on the planet and they believe manufacturing and industry, or excuse me, manufacturing and energy is the way to do it? Capitalism. They they realized that the Soviet Union, with the military might that they supposedly had, did, couldn't supplant the U.S. And the communists, they learned from Russia's mistake, and now they're going after the dollars and the production. The global economy is where they're fighting their war. And winning. We're in a Cold War. We, well, I mean, you know, I'm not going to count America out. I never would. We, we right now are building lithium-ion battery manufacturing in the United States. We're building chip plants in the United States. We actually have a new battlefield. But, Jeff, but Jeff, let me interrupt you for a second. And I'm not trying sure. to be argumentative, but you would agree no, that no, the, the good professor represented by the administration just admitted that they have concerns about the critical mineral supply chain and the fact that China has kind of sort of cornered the market on the on the, the the minerals required to build lithium ion batteries, they they've got a head they they've got a head start on it. Absolutely, they do. But the investment in the plant in the U.S. and you remember, I called your delegation and asked them, "How do you feel about investing in an EV plant? How do you feel about spending tax dollars from South Carolina to build a battery plant?" And it was kind of laughed off and dismissed. But that's what we got to do. And we're doing it. But when you said you would rather, in, in this, you would rather give the money to the Saudi Arabians than the Chinese, we're going to build batteries in the U.S. and we're going to buy lithium ion directly from countries that have resources. Do you see us doing that? I hope you're right. I really do. Jeff, yeah, got I mean, a, we, hey, Jeff, we got a hard break, top it? of the hour. Sure. Shannon Bream at 9.05. I hope you're right. I mean, I hope that this is one time that Ken is wrong and Jeff is right. I hope we beat the Chinese at securing the rights to mineral or to mine for the minerals necessary to evolve from one transportation mode to another. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Occasionally, I mean, every day we get guests um, from Fox offered to us. Occasionally, we get these special invitations. Today was one of those days We have a special invite, anchor of Fox News Sunday, chief legal correspondent at Fox News, um, has written a book, The Love Stories of the Bible Speak. Shannon Bream is with us this morning. Ms. Bream, good morning. How are you? Ken, I'm great. How are you doing? I am doing well. So as a native South Carolinian who has run for office in the buckle of the Bible belt, I was always careful to not get crossed up with the church crowd, so to speak. 
in uh in, in my world in my republican uh primary world but but i did grow up at a southern baptist church i am uh a christian i do believe in the in the gospel of jesus i do believe in the old and new testament and and when i when i saw the notes that um that fox provided it interested me because my mind immediately went to corinthians and what paul said about faith hope and love the greatest is love Mm-hmm. It, what motivated you to write a book about the Bible as a love story? You know, I think a lot of people don't realize these stories are tucked in there. Yes, there are stories about romance, but also about deep friendships, about the importance of community, how we're created for that, how God's pursuing us with his unconditional love, and that whole love your neighbor as yourself tricky thing. Um, there are just so many different ways that love is talked about in the Bible, and you know, because it's shown to us that we are then called to show it to other people. So I thought, gosh, this is all encompassing. It won't be just the romance. It's all the other parts of love that are so important in our lives, too. You are in the world of political journalism. That is not the most lovey-dovey world there is. Was, <laughs> was this a bit therapeutic for you? Oh, it always is. Whenever I get to write about these Bible stories and dig in, um, like it sounds like we grew up the same way growing up in church. You hear these stories, you know them. But to really dig in and get to know these people was such an encouragement to me to remind myself, gosh, God's always working in our stories, even when they're really dark and Alley. Um, even when we're flawed and we are messed up, some of these stories are less than ideal, but God worked through all of them. So yeah, it encouraged me and it reminded me of that whole, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Washington can be a really divisive place, but we're called to be radically unselfish in the way that we care about and love other people. And um, it's not optional. When I think of the Bible, I think of humanistic. I think of supernatural. The story that comes to my mind, I'd love to get your take on this, is the story of Joseph and Mary. Uh, the virgin birth, mm-hmm. uh, Joseph being a real dude with a real wife, dealing with, with real issues, <laughs> and all of a sudden something very supernatural happens in their world. Were, were, there, were there a story or two that, that, that stood out to you in relation to writing about the Bible as a, as a love story? Yeah, that is a great one, because so often, rightly so, there's so much focus on Mary and what she was called to do and how young she was and how frightening the whole thing must have been. But you're right. We point out that Joseph is a big part of this, too. He had a decision to make. And instead of, you know, putting her away, as the Bible said, or sort of divorcing or breaking off their relationship, um, because there would be public scorn and a lot of questions, he stayed and he walked through that with her. And he's now raising this uh, Messiah that's not biologically his son, but he's been given this assignment to protect him and Mary. And there are times they were fleeing for their lives. I mean, it was a real um, implication on whatever you know they had planned as a couple was kind of out the door. And Joseph embraced it and he protected Mary. He protected Joseph and he was just very much a servant hearted kind of husband and father, which I think is a beautiful thing. Um, Listen, I love the story of Samson and Delilah too, because I always include the messed up or the flawed stories just to show that, you know, we can make bad decisions. There are wrong ways to go about, you know, these romantic relationships. But in the end, God still redeemed it because Samson was faithful to come back to him and say like, Ooh, I really messed up my life, but God be with me in this moment. And God was always there. I am not a journalist. I don't have much of a reputation, so I can ask this question. You have both, and I want to uh, be careful with those. But um, the the debate on marriage in America has historically been uh, kind of secular versus spiritual. I want to say uh, versus. That's probably an overstatement there. But I've always believed that marriage is defined in a biblical way. Um, we're talking about love. Marriage is love between a man and a woman. I, I want to be careful here, but but – 
how much of that biblical concept can you check at the door when you discuss the political events of today that do include, you know, a a redefining of marriage? Is that a fair Mm -hmm. question? Yeah, listen, I feel like um, there are all kinds of interesting and controversial stories that we cover every single day. And I remember covering uh, at the Supreme Court the legal fight all the way there over same-sex marriage. And so um, I always think that it's fascinating to dig into how things happen, how history unfolds. And I will always remember those really big days and big events. So um, I think all of us come to stories with our own personal viewpoints or opinions. um, But certainly as a news person, when I get there, I'm really covering it as a neutral observer to give you the facts on the ground and what's happening. But I'm always fascinated and feel really privileged that I have kind of this front row seat to history as these things happen. Ms. Breen, the name of the book is The Love Stories of the Bible Speak. Um, Is it out yet? When will it be out? How can our listeners find a copy? Yeah, you can find it anywhere you like to get books. If you like to do them online, there's an audio version or, you know, a, a digital version, whatever works for you. Um, it is out there and available. You can go to foxnewsbooks.com or any of the Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any of those retailers. Um, it's there for you. We appreciate your time and good luck with the book and congratulations on being the anchor of Fox News Sunday. Thank you, Ken. Thank you very much, Shannon Bream. Once again, anchor of Fox News Sunday. Um I'm telling you something about Rev now, and and I'll give him all the credit of the world. Rev is exemplary in what he does. But if oh. we get a chance, and he knows where I'm at, if we get a chance, Josh, you'll figure this out, no shot. If we get a chance to interview one of them fox babes, it's over. I mean, it's it's over. So when Josh brought me the um, okay, when, I cannot when, dispute. When, when Josh brought me the rundown this morning, it's the typical, you know. It's, this reporter talks about this, and this reporter talks about that. And I'm like, oh, I'd rather hear myself talk than, than that. <laughs> right. um, and then Rev walks in, and he says, hey, you did see Shannon Bream was over. And I said, no, I didn't see that. Um, I said, you want to do it? Oh, I knew the answer to that. I mean, it's over. I mean, that, there's no doubt in my mind. So he he scurries about, and he and, he and Josh kind of collaborate. And he comes done. back, and he yeah. says, hey, I got Shannon Bream at 9.05. Um, I said, okay, well, I knew that was happening. I mean, there, there's no way around that. <laughs> If you give Rev a chance to um to have as a guest one of the Fox, I don't want to be insulting, but I mean it is. I mean we know the business model of Fox, right? I mean the business We've model talked of about Fox, it a lot. No I mean doubt. it's it's um it's very visual. I mean th- th- there's a visual aspect to Fox News that um they knew they 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 realized that the majority of news viewers are dudes, and you know who delivers the news is it is it accurate or not? Doesn't matter. Um, how tall is he and how much does she weigh? That, that's what I'm more interested in. Um, and, uh, and Fox has done a marvelous job of a, um, of an array of journalistic talent that happens to, uh, look a certain way. How about that? Can we uh, say that? Look, I just think when we have the opportunity to interview somebody and she is a notable person on Fox news, she hosts Fox news Sunday. Um, I think she's actually related to Sid Bream too. I figured you'd be interested in that. Uh, but. I say, I present it to you. Is this something you're interested in? And if you say yes, we line it up. And if you say no, we probably still line it up. Okay, let me do this for you. Now, you're, you're the Braves aficionado. Thank you to Shannon Brain. I mean, that's a big deal to get her. And congratulations to Ref for scoring one of the Fox, <laughs> shall I say, babes on our, on our show. <laughs> so when Bream scores the, the run to beat the Pirates, who was the batter for the Braves? Who hit the ball between third and short that Barry Bonds charged this is Barry Bonds pre-steroids. Go look at Barry Bonds when he makes the throw from left field 
um, toward home to try and throw Sid Bream out. Bream say, Braves win, Braves win, Braves win, Braves win. Who was the yeah. batter for the Atlanta Braves? Oh, great trivia. Yeah. I can't come up with it. Francisco Cabrera. Okay. Yeah, Frankie Cabrera got the hit. Bonds was in left field. Bream round second. And Skip Carey famously says, what, 16 times yeah. consecutively? Braves win. Braves win. Braves win. Braves win. Yeah. Braves win. And then he finally, I think he finally says, they're going to have to put Bream on a hospital gurney or something to get him to the to the hospital. But Frankie I, Cabrera. I was watching that game live. I remember it. Oh, I clearly. remember it extremely well. But Frankie Cabrera got the hit. And um, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you how weird I am. They hung a fastball and Cabrera hit a missile foul. And I remember thinking to myself, major league pitchers make about one mistake per at bat. And if the major league batter makes some pay, it's a good day for the home team. And when the when the pitcher hung the fastball and Cabrera drilled it, but it was foul, as a Braves fan, I remember thinking, oh, that's the one swing. You know what I mean? The pitcher won't make another mistake. And then Cabrera gets another fastball and, and kind of drives it between third and short. And, and, and pre-steroid Barry Bonds. You know, uh, that's back when he looked like not the Hulk, but a normal left fielder for the uh, for the Pittsburgh uh, Pirates, which was a, I mean, it was a phenomenal game. Just and that's part of one of the greatest baseball series. Yeah, and it was the postseason on the line. Uh, it, I mean, was, it was it was everything you'd want it to ever be. I mean, it was um it was the beginning of the Braves run that made it exciting. Later in the Braves run, you become accustomed to winning. Right, and you we didn't know, it, but you didn't know it then. You didn't no, know, no, you know you, the you had no clue. I mean, here we are, man. The Braves had sucked for years and years and years and years. And all of a sudden, you know, they they put together a team. Um, I'm thinking about the other Terry Pendleton was on that team. Remember the uh, Raphael Belliard, the defensive specialist, sure. couldn't fall out of a boat and hit water, but he played ten years in the major leagues because nothing got past uh, Belliard. Uh, Mark Lemke played second base for that squad, but it was all about pitching. I mean, that that was a pitching oriented team. And as I said before, and then Rev's heard me say this a hundred times. Bobby Cox was a good manager, not a great manager, because he didn't win enough world championships to be called a great manager. But if you give me Smoltz, Glavin, and Maddox in their career, in the prime of their career, I think I could throw the fourth day and rev throw the fifth. <laughs> and we win 60% of the games so that get you in the playoffs every single year. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. We have Dave calling from the PD. Dave, you're live. Hey, good morning. Hey, Ken, what do you always say? Uh, man, I was going to talk about Paul Ryan, but now you got Shannon Bream on there. But what, she's selling a book, right? Yep, she's selling a book. Believe that. What's it uh, called? Love Stories of the Bible? Mm-hmm. Well, me and Dave Baker are King David, so we know all about Love Stories of the Bible. <laughs> uh, and I can assure you now, Dave Baker, he turned Tulsi Gabbard into a Fox contributor, so... <laughs> He knows how to work that. Yeah, we'll, we'll take credit uh, for that. Well, you take credit for that, Ken. I'm gonna I'm gonna accuse you plagiarizing here this morning, man. You said something about no guys for you. That's Seinfeld. It and was intended to be Seinfeld. It, it was intended to be a knockoff on no soup for you. I know, I know that, my man. Uh, but you know what's funny? I, I you call talk about institutional power uh, centers. I'm looking at this Hollywood writers strike. And then Jimmy Kimmel, these amateurs are trying to be doing what you do, and that Colbert trying to do what you do. They can't even put on a show last night. So who writes your material, Ken? That would be yours truly. 
Yours truly. So anybody, anybody that can come up with a windmill up your behind, and let's say you put the windmill up somebody's behind and put them on a skateboard, uh, that would be Beto O'Rourke. But anyway, I, I really just want to talk about Paul Ryan today, but I'll leave that for another day. Man, uh, but hey, if Dave, if you can get Maria Bartiromo, get if you can get in the studio, I'll come down there, man. <laughs> Thank you, David. Appreciate day. it. 843-661-09. We've tried uh, to get her seven. and have not had, had any luck yet. We've tried to get her? Get her on the air for an interview. Okay. Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, Marie Bartiroma. Maria she's, Bartiroma. Okay, but she's more of a financial. Right. Uh, she's on the, uh, the the Fox financial um, news. 843-661-0937 is our number. Josh, you got your mic on there, my man. We hear you. We hear you, Yeah, we, we hear you talking to you. Girlfriend over there in the other in the other state. <laughs> he's gonna, he's gonna see the look on Yeah, I did see the look on Oh, he's paranoid about making a mistake. He, uh, you got to chill. You gonna make a mistake or two or three? I mean, I'm the only perfect human being God ever made. Uh, I'm only uh, Josh. You're mortal. You're gonna make a mistake every now and then. I know the pressure. Uh, I mean, Rev's had to deal with this for eleven years, be, being around a perfect human being. Right. I, mean, I get oh, that. Yes. I mean, that that gets. A bit daunting, mm-hmm. right, Rev? It sure does. Yes. <laughs> I think about made. it all the time. I mean, I, Josh has probably already left here and said, I, I, I don't know the word he's just saying. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know that I've ever heard that it's word. It's not a word. <laughs> it's not an expansive vocabulary. It's called abusing the Queen's English. And efficiency um, sometimes. Yeah, very, very efficient. Optimism. You'll learn, you'll learn that one as yeah. time goes by. Um, let's go to the phone. Someone's there. We have Tim in Pamplico. Tim, you're live. Hey, how y'all doing up there? Hey, Tim. How you doing, buddy? Hey, tell Josh is doing a fine job, but um, he'll get the, the the gist of it yet and everything, you know. <laughs> hey, look here. So, you know, we were talking about the windmill up the behind. The other day, I had to see Miss Jennifer Grant on on the uh, one of the things, and you know. So then I researched this lady. You know, talking about institutional people. She's been around a long time up there in Washington. Been putting in a lot of different places. You know. Might have been a Supreme Court justice, you know, consideree at one time. But anyway, so the other day she is talking about they want to make our military by the year 2030 totally electric. So you know what happens when we get out there in the middle of, you know, Saskatchewan or somewhere. And the um, so, you know, our enemy hits our power plants. Uh, we ain't got no electricity, Sergeant Major. We can't charge them tanks up. Well, y'all crank up them generators. Oh, no, ain't got no gas. You know, so, you know, um, these people, as smart as they seem to be, sometimes they may not think everything all the way out, you know. And I just wanted to throw that in there. I just happened to hear about it, see about it the other day, and I don't think the military needs to be totally electric now. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate it. And and I'll go back to the analogy I use a lot, this flight simulator. I mean, this is in pilot school. You don't get in a simulator and you crash the plane or you don't. And we're making big, big decisions. And Jeff is more confident than I am. Now, to Jeff's credit, he did ask the delegation, you know, do you understand the complexities of which we're uh, incentivizing? That, that's my concern, that because of, uh, shall I say, the zealotry of government, um, uh, I, it's not an abusive nature of government. That's unfair. I mean, I think government's punitive. I think government government abuses the privileges it has to govern over over we the people. I mean, that that kind of be a, a 
uh, that'd be more of an ideological, philosophical alignment that I have because I don't want government messing with me much, and and some people are comfortable having government with oversight and 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 some degree of um control over. But but when you when you the Biden appointee basically admitted to Josh Hawley, an America First senator, um, that there is concern about the critical mineral supply chain, um, and then you you kind of juxtapose that 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 sentence with the fact that 96% of all lithium ion batteries are produced in Asia, 60% in China, 24% in Korea, 10% in Japan. I mean, I don't know of another business that 96% is produced in um, in places other than the country trying to transform or transition its economy from one mode of transportation to another. I mean, that those are very critical issues. Let me ask you this, Reb. I mean, you're a smart man. If you were serving an elected body and somebody asked you to incentivize the, the transitioning of, of, of transportation from one internal combustion engine, uh, fossil fuel-based power, to another, electric uh, vehicles, electric um, cars, electric trucks, electric boats, electric chains, uh, uh, you know, electro-car, electro-hydro, uh, hydrogen airplanes. I mean, if somebody asked you that. And, and you said, okay, that, that, that sounds good. I mean, good for the environment. We don't depend on Saudi Arabia as much. Um, you know, uh, the, the old way is the old way. The new way could potentially be the new way. But, but all of a sudden, Rev, there's one thing I forgot to tell you. As we transition from the internal combustion engine to the electric vehicle, you need to know that 60% of the batteries are made in China. 24% are made in Korea. 10% are made in Japan. Rev would probably go, uh, 60 plus 26, that's 86 plus 10, that's 90, 96% of all the <laughs> batteries made. relying on them a little yeah, too I mean, much? Not, not, not 24%, not 40, 96% of all the lithium-ion batteries in the world today are made, um, not at Albemarle in, 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 in you know, North Carolina, Carolina. But, but rather in China, Korea, and Japan, China in particular, what would bother me? I mean, I'd, I'd have a lot more questions about whether or not I want to be on board with this policy decision. And, and guys, the country has made a policy decision based on climate change. That's my genuine concern, that if you back it all the way up to in the beginning, um, and I figured out about Genesis in respect to Janet, uh, excuse me, Shannon Breen, in the beginning, the country decided that climate change is real and there must be monumental changes to the way we provide energy for our economy. Now, now I don't buy that, but, but the country has bought that. I mean, the majority of Americans today believe, I mean, the, the, the data shows this, 68 or 9% of Americans believe that man is largely contributing to climate change. I don't believe that. I'm one of the, um, the, the, the 31% that don't believe it. Two-thirds believe it, one-third don't believe it. I'm in the minority here. I'm in the one-third. But, but I, as, as I would ask the questions of the two-third, that, that would be an interesting. The two-third that have already decided the science is settled and we are contributing to climate change and we know how much and we know what to do about not contributing as much over the next hundred years as we have uh, the past hundred years, somebody's got to ask that question about critical mineral supply chain. I mean, and Josh Hawley's the only guy that's I've heard ever asked that question. So here we are, um, Ford and GM being incentivized to convince you the electric car is the better way to go. Um, I expressed earlier, not only did the government incentivize electric vehicles, 
But now auto manufacturers are using the internal combustion engine side of their business to incentivize the electric vehicle. I hope Jeff is right. I hope that I'm wrong. I mean, I, I mean that with every fiber of my body. I like being right, but I hope I'm wrong on this. Because I've said over and over and over again that the two mistakes we can't make, and I'm afraid we're making both, is the belief that debt doesn't matter, and it doesn't matter how much we borrow, as long as we're borrowing from ourselves and we have the ability to print our own currency, that doesn't matter. I mean, that's kind of, um, I mean, that's a bridge past Keynesian economy. That, that is modern monetary theory. I hope I'm wrong there. So, so when it comes to the transitioning from fossil fuels to green, renewable, clean energy, I hope I'm wrong. I also hope I'm wrong by, by, by proclaiming that I believe one day the federal debt is, is going to be much to our demise. Those are two big issues. I mean, that, that's not, you know, um, should we pay off $10,000 of people's student debt or not? I mean, that, that, there's some ideology in that, that there's some personal responsibility in that, there's some constitutionality in that, but we're going to be okay. But that's not going to ruin the country. That's not going to inhibit us from living a prosperous life if we decide to pay off ten grand of student debt. I mean, I don't think we should. I think it's a bad decision. I think it's un-American. I think it's against the Constitution. But, but it's not the end of the world. If we get energy wrong, it could be the end of our world as we know it. Not the end of the world. I mean, God calls that. But the end of our world as we know it. And if we get our debt wrong, if I'm right and the debt really matters and at some point in time the world says thank you but no thank you to the dollar, we live in a fundamentally different America. And if we transition from fossil fuel or a carbon-based economy to, to an electric clean energy-based economy and it doesn't work, our lives are fundamentally different. Rev's life is not fundamentally different if we pay student debt off or not. Rev's life is not fundamentally different if we... Uh, fund to a higher degree than we should the Department of Education. Rev's life is fundamentally different if we get energy wrong. It's fundamentally different if we get debt wrong. And I personally think we're getting both wrong. 843-661-0937. We need to take a break. We're far behind. Um, we're out of Celsius at the radio station, uh -oh. so I'm trying some fast twitch. I think it might be just as effective. <laughs> Whether Gatorade or Celsius, it's still 200 milligrams of caffeine, right? Caffeine is caffeine, whether yeah. it's in a can or or a bottle. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. How many times do you say, I hope I'm wrong? I mean, nobody hopes they're wrong. I hope I'm dead wrong about transitioning from one energy source to another. I hope I'm dead wrong about the debt. I don't think I am. But I certainly hope so. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. We have Troy calling from Kentucky. Troy, you're live. Good morning, guys. How y'all doing this morning? Hey, Troy, how hey, are Troy. you? Pretty good. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this whole climate change thing that's going on. Uh, first off, if they were really concerned about the environment and climate change, they'd put some windmills around Washington and all the hot air that comes out of there would keep those things going and we'd be totally set from uh, any foreign energy we could ever need. And uh, second off, um, you know, about the Ford report, I'm kind of thinking this might 
be the beginning of a trend where automakers are going to have to sit back and realize, hey, maybe we've gone into this electrification a little bit too quick, too early. Um, because people just, if they don't want electric vehicles, they're not going to buy them. Uh, GM made that mistake back in 2008 or 2009 with the Chevy Volt. They put all this money into it, and people just didn't want it. And um, I, I think if we're going to do electrification, it should be in addition to what we have right now instead of in place of, because we have to have a bridge between the two if we're going to go that route. And I think maybe hybrids are a, a viable uh, strategy for that. I know Toyota and, to some extent, Honda have put a lot into that. But if we're going to do this, we have to do it right. And part of that is, you know, building the batteries and fuel cells and things like that here versus getting them from China. That, that's just my thought, Ken. Thank you, Troy. Appreciate that. But then you've got, I mean, guys, when the government makes its mind up that this is the way we're going, I mean, it's hard to beat it. I mean, it really and truly is. And and I started about three months ago, maybe six months ago, reading things as I prepare for the show. And more than one story included the terminology peak EV. I found that kind of interesting. What do you mean peak EV? There's a there's a story um, out there. I mean, it's kind of interesting. It's um it's the Verge. I mean, I think it's a um uh, it's got a real provocative headline. The end is near for gas powered cars, and and they go into detail. And we talked a little bit about this when it happened. The EPA um, announced this new tailpipe emission standard that is basically designed mm, to force the auto industry to phase out the sale of gas-powered vehicles. I mean, that's kind of what in uh, – so, 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 yes. I mean, you know, the consumer having a choice is capitalism. I mean, that's the market-based economy. But we become very comfortable with the government deciding in very aggressive ways that instead of yanging, we're yanging. Instead of bobbing, we're weaving. And instead of going this way, we're going, we're going that way. Um, and then you've got this religion, this ESG, you know, the, this social governance standard of which people, um, and, but, but, but there's, there's, there's a belief out there amongst real smart people that electric vehicles will fade when the costs become clear. In other words, when the federal government, if they ever decide to stop subsidizing, I mean, they're subsidizing the manufacturing, they're subsidizing the purchasing. I mean, they're, 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 they're giving auto manufacturers great advantages to build electric vehicles. They're creating great obstacles to build internal combustion engines that about two months ago, that law, the EPA passed, and it's a tailpipe emission standard. And when you talk to people who understand the, the internal combustion engine, they'll say, wow, I mean, that pretty much makes almost impossible to build. I mean, talk about cafe standards. This would be cafe standards on on multiple doses and series or, or cycles of steroids. So, so, so the point I'm making is the, the country and the American taxpayer are making enormous investments and assuming that this is going to be a peaceful transition. I'm arguing that it's not going to be anywhere near as easy as we made it sound. And, and I go back to Biden on the debate stage in Pennsylvania. When Trump challenged him, and Trump, remember the moment when Trump said, that's a big statement. That's a big statement, Joe. And he basically said, you know, we're not going to emit any carbon by the year 2035. To me, 
once again, guys, this is my show. Uh, well, it's our show, but in my opinion, is far more forcefully pronounced than Rev's is. <laughs> but that should have been a disqualifier. I mean, somebody I who agree. wants to be president can't be that irresponsible or ill-informed or just downright dumb. I mean, that, that's, or, or lying what to get well, elected, but, but, to, to appease okay. the, the climate cultist. But, but the, the climate cultist, that, that's very well said. But the cultists have amassed enormous influence. Sure have. I mean, there, there is no doubt about it. It really goes back to the institution of conservatism, of the Paul Ryan ilk, or imposing your beliefs on on the masses. And the left has done an unbelievable job of imposing your beliefs on the masses. We've blown past gay marriage like it wasn't jack. I mean, now we're talking about should. I mean, we went from a debate about a, a month long, a minute or two we spent debating gay marriage, and now we're about, you know, should a minor child be able to mutilate their genitalia without parental consent by a licensed medical provider? And there's people that are arguing for that forcefully. Half the country. <laughs> I, I mean, know. if you're voting for a Democrat, that's what you're voting for. I mean, I, I said a couple of weeks ago, but I'll stand by this. I don't know how a woman could vote for a Democrat today. I mean, when you look at the scorecard, every Republican in Congress said no to men competing against women in organized sports. Every Democrat in America said yes. So if you're a female, well, forget playing sports or not. I mean, if you're a female and you accept that there is a biological difference between the male and female, on average, the male is bigger, faster, stronger, more athletic. On average, the male is bigger, stronger, faster, and more athletic. So on the average, he's going to win sporting events when competing against females. And the Democrats said, so what? Tough stuff. There is no XY chromosome. That there is no XX chromosome. That there is no, I mean, sex is not a science. Gender is a spectrum, Rib. It's a spectrum. I mean, there, there's no, mm-hmm. and, and, and the women will vote for Democrats despite the Democrat Party being unanimously in support of that worldview. That's bizarre to me. But once again, it goes back to kind of the central theme of this week's shows. There is a kind of an institutionalization of conservatism, and it's respectful, and it's, you know, kind of obedient to the calls. And, and, and we read the National Review, and we read the Weekly Standard, and we read Atlas Shrugged, and we, we listen to what George Will had to say, and we, we go to the Heritage Foundation occasionally, and we'll make a contribution to the Cato Institute. And the left is kicking your ass up one da- up one side of the field and down the other. And they're imposing their beliefs. They're imposing their values. In 08, the liberal voters of California said no to same-sex marriage. In 2015, the Supreme Court said yes. We redefined a word that had been around since the beginning of time or the beginning of, um, I mean, the Bible talks about the covenant of marriage. Uh, Shannon Bream just talked about the covenant of marriage. And now the left has decided climate change is real. Stop with the debate. And because climate change, we're going to force you to stop driving cars powered by fossil fuel and instead an electric vehicle. And you've got government, high-ranking government officials saying that by the year 2035, we want the entire United States military to be powered by the electric vehicle. No fossil fuel for you. And that's just a bizarre place for our country to be. And once again, I don't like the fact that they're debating paying off student debt. But it doesn't fundamentally change my life. If we get the energy transition wrong, if we get the debt wrong, it fundamentally changes 
our existence and the way we live uh, this pretty cool life we've been allowed to lead. Let's take a break. We'll be back. Now we got a call. We'll get to the call on the other side of this break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. We have Chad calling from Florence. Chad, you're live. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, just wanted to make a couple of points here. I know we're getting towards the end of the show, but um, in in many ways, I do kind of agree with Jeff and some of the liberal crowd in that we do have to figure out a way to wean ourselves off fossil fuels. We know that it is a a finite amount of material, and at some point it is going to run out. But you can't make a quick transition from fossil fuels to an alternative fuel source from a place of financial weakness. Currently, our country is in no shape financially to make this big of a transition. And I agree, Ken, with what you said earlier, that it is going to break us as a nation, um, especially when you have countries as China and Russia, especially China, that is continuing to use fossil fuels to their advantage to gain every possible financial advantage um, over pretty much the rest of the world. They are throwing money to every country there is. But I have a, a solution, I think, that makes pretty good sense, which is probably why it would never make it through Washington. But um, just think about this for a second. Experts have said 150 years of fossil fuels remain in both terrestrial and um, aquatic sources, you know, sub-oceanic, subterranean oceanic sources. We could have 150 years of fossil fuel use in the United States to completely uh, satisfy all of our needs. Why don't we set ourselves a 50-year time clock? And we drop the price of gasoline down as low as we can get, perhaps a dollar a gallon, diesel a dollar fifty, two dollars a gallon. We soup up the American economy. We make every American happy by lowering the cost of living, incre- increasing um, their their happiness, if you will, and the prosperity, the financial prosperity of our country. And in that time frame, we take some of the the profits that we make off of this and we invest in experimentation with alternative fuel sources because at the end of 50 years, we're going to wean ourselves off. We're going to turn that pump off and we're going to have an alternative fuel source that works. That's not going to break the bank. But for those 50 years, we're going to experience financial prosperity like the country has never seen. Now, what do you do with the extra oil that you're pumping? Well, you sell that to some other countries around the world. You try to beat the prices of your competitors. You take that, put it into the coffers, uh, build up the resources that we're going to need to develop this new technology and, and, and thoughtfully make this transition, not just willy-nilly try to do it as quick as we can. That is going to break the bank, so to speak, and ruin the country. Um, you know, Perhaps even make these power-producing entities tax-free. Give them every opportunity to pump uh, energy into the U.S. economy, lower our, our national debt, build up our savings, build up our reserves, and also build a viable alternative fuel source so that at the end of 50 years, we're off of it. So a lot of bullet points to cover underneath that, um, but I'll leave you with that to discuss. Well, that's Thanks, a big vision. Thank you, Chad. Appreciate it. Mean, that, that's a big vision. I mean, that's, that's where the country needs to be. I mean, if we're thinking about doing something as big as transitioning from fossil fuel to green or renewable or clean energy, I mean, to, to, to believe it's going to be done by some government edict or order, I mean, that, that's impossible. It's not going to happen and go back to the engineering concept of EROI, energy in, energy out. It takes more energy to, to and it takes more carbon, to be honest. I mean, in the life of an electric vehicle, um, it doesn't produce less carbon. It produces more carbon as we speak. And I think it's unbelievably dangerous. There you go, not unbelievably, dangerously ambitious to sell our soul to EVs without having answers to some of these questions. 
it's 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 once again it's it's the body politic trying to drive the capital markets of the market in one direction or another. I am more than willing to explore clean energy. I am more than willing to advocate a way to wean us off of a finite resource such as fossil fuel. I'm not sure how finite it is, but but I mean I'm sure it is. The, the planet is a finite sphere. Um, there can only be so much oil. Is there a hundred years worth of oil left or a thousand years worth of oil left? How fast does oil reproduce itself? I mean, th- these are big questions that I don't think we've had serious conversations about. Chad probably had as serious a conversation about the big picture as anybody ever has. And, and you know, the, the, the facts are stubborn things. And when you talk about critical mineral supply chain, and 96% of those minerals are controlled by Asian companies, 60% China in particular. How do you deal with that? I mean, that's got to be a big part of the equation. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.